Binge Movies, the revolutionary force in movie reviews. Coming to you from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies, episode 137. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks and eliminates films to determine which ones are most worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. In this episode, we rank Margot Rabbi. A lot of people are mispronounced the name here, uh, Megan. Some people say, uh, you know, Roby, Robbie, Margot, Margot. I like to say Margot Rabbi. Is that, I think that's the correct pronunciation. I think that's what she says in the, the junket circuit when I watch the videos. That's what she says, Margot <laughs> Rabbi? <laughs> Margot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Margot Rabbi. I don't recall that. <laughs> <laughs> I had an aunt named Margot, so it's. I think it's probably just a, fami- a familiar name for her too. It's an uh, it's an unusual pronunciation. That is an unusual pronunciation. It could also just be the the heavy Australian accent. Could be. That's so why I don't I don't know that. We'll have to ask Paul from the countdown if Margot is the correct pronunciation. Could be. As far as you know, is it Robbie Roby? I mean, I always thought her name was Margot Robbie, so. But that's a, I, so that's what we're going to go with. But I could be wrong. I've been wrong before about pronunciation, so you never know. <laughs> Megan, you're an esteemed film critic, a member of the Boston <laughs> Film Critics Association, and one of the lead hosts of Spoiler Piece Theater. There's no way that you would mispronounce one of the great stars of our time. Yes, never. I'm always correct. <laughs> the 21st century's Goldie Hawn. I'm not mad at that comparison. She moved into production. She got her start, you mm-hmm. know, as a since sex pot rolls and some comedies, different types of comedies. Cause we don't make Cody mm-hmm. Hahn style comedies anymore. You know, moved That's over true. to mainstream films, more like thrillers or so whatever production company, powerful Hollywood presence. I, what I'm saying is I think Goldie Hahn fell overboard. So Margot Robbie could <laughs> Amsterdam, you know, I love overboard. It's one of my faves. I thought you were going to say, you know, I love Amsterdam. Oh, God, no. David O. Russell? Absolutely not. He's disgusting. No. <laughs> He's a piece of shit. No. <laughs> you're, not, you're, you're not a David O. Russell fan. I, no, I he's it. gross. He is gross to people on sets. He is appalling. No, I support nothing he does. <laughs> I don't know the full depth and breadth, but I'll just say Lily Tomlin had it coming. Oh, what? No. <laughs> oh, you put me in a room with Lily Tom and I'm screaming at her too. Just do it. No. Just do it. Never. <laughs> we, we, I think I think we could all agree Lily Tomlin deserves to be screamed at from a time. What? No. Two, you know? She's great. <laughs> Some people just need to be brought down a peg. Tomlin's one of those people. Bring her down. No. <laughs> agree to disagree. <laughs> I, I think Goldie Hawn's a good comparison, but I think Margot Robbie is much better at dramatic roles. And I think she chooses more interesting roles. Whoa, 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 whoa. Have you seen 1991's Deceived starring Goldie Hawn and John Hurd? <laughs> I have. Get back to me after you. It's been okay, a very right. long time. Get back time. to me after you watch that one. Get back to me after you watch that one and then tell me that Goldie Hawn isn't a good dramatic actress. I didn't actress, say God she wasn't good. I said, I think Margot Robbie is better. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is going to be interesting. Uh, This is basically a retrospective. You and I have already done this with 
Scarlett Johansson. Yes. Uh, I decided to have you come back for this one because I think it'd be really interesting to talk about her. These five films in particular. Uh, we're going to be talking about Wolf of Wall Street, which is her breakout film, Focus, uh, which was uh, her follow-up, essentially, one of her bigger follow-ups to Wolf of Wall Street. And Legend of Tarzan, which was supposed to be her first attempt at the big IP world, uh, concurrently with the Suicide Squad. She got cast as, of course, Harley Quinn. She has a dramatic Academy Award, transformational performance in I, Tanya, And then she tries to write the DCEU ship, at least for herself and her fellow sisters, by doing a girl gang film called Birds of Prey, which came out in 2020. We're going to be talking and ranking those five films, trying to determine which one is the best. I'm looking at my watch. I think it's about that time for a deep disagreement. Megan's going to end up screaming at me like David O. Russell did at Lily Tomlin. Of course, I'm talking about what I believe to be one of the best comedies of the 21st century. It should have been on your list. 2013's The Wolf of Wall Street. Marty, yeah! 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Support for Binge Movies is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate in men's hygiene. Join over 6 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive Binge Movies Manscaped offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code BINGEMOVIES at manscaped.com. If my math is correct, that's about 12 million balls. Time to clean up the streets. Again, get 20% off and free shipping with the code BINGEMOVIES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code BINGEMOVIES. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. You finally found a broker on Wall Street that you can trust. For Leo, this is a roll of a lifetime. feel that it's his best performance, really. I need them to want to live like me. You're a sick man. This is insane. You really knocked this one out there. It's good, right? What did you do? Rated R. Was directed by Martin Scorsese, who Guillermo del Toro would give years of his life to give minutes to Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I would take the yes, minutes that would. Martin Scorsese has left in his life to give myself just 20 seconds more. I would suck the life out of that old man, leave him nothing but a husk just so I could breathe two extra breaths. This is written wait, wait, by which Terrence. One are you, <laughs> like, which one are you sucking the life out of? <laughs> Scorsese, yeah. He, oh, okay. uh, he's, he's got one foot in a grave, one foot in a banana pill. America's greatest director, sure. I'm still sucking the life out of him. Written by Terrence Winter, Triumph Return of John Favreau, uh, last seen somewhere in the MCU, Triumph Return of John Barenthal, last seen in Sicario, Triumph Return of Matthew McConaughey, last seen in Magic Mike, Triumph Return of, of course, Margot Robbie herself, uh, last seen in Suicide Squad, which we covered uh, many moons ago. This was released December 17th, 2013, on a budget of $100 million. Most of that money came from, ironically, <laughs> pyramid schemes, Russian oligarch tax shelters, and a lot of illegalities went on for <laughs> the production of this movie about <laughs> financial fraud. This thing made $392 million at the worldwide box office. 
80s shyster stockbroker does miles of blow, loses millions of dollars, and has the decency not to run for president. Um, let's start with you. Uh, I'm I'm getting the vibe that you hate this film. So let's 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 dive into why you hate it. <laughs> I don't. So I I actually need to yeah. correct that. I I do not hate this movie by mm-hmm. any means. But people think I hate this movie because of the way I talk about this. Well, then movie. correct us, educate <laughs> because, us. Because yes. <laughs> so I think this is a technical, like in its technical elements, I think this is an incredible film. I think the cinematography is great. The pacing is great. The editing is great. Of course, Thelma Schumacher, amazing editing. I think the performances are great, especially Margot Robbie. This, I mean, this mm-hmm. was her breakout film and she's incredible. What could have been a very one dimensional, you know, bombshell sex pot role. And I use bombshell kind of ironically because she hates that term. Um, I think she adds depth to that role. She really wields her sexuality and rage incredibly well. She's riveting. And the first time I saw this, I was like, who is this? Like, she's great. So I don't dislike this movie. I I like Martin Scorsese as a filmmaker tremendously. He's incredible. I mean, what he's done for cinema as a whole is uh, absolutely amazing. He has done so much. And his films are great. I think that this is a much better film when he did this as Goodfellas. Uh, You're trampling on my notes. (laughs) Ah, sorry. My problem with this film is that when I saw this, I saw this at a press screening. And usually there's not a lot of people if it's just a press screening. This actually had a lot because this was a hyped up film. And when Margot Robbie gets punched in the stomach, there were a couple of critics. They were men and they laughed. Oh. And not the kind of like, oh, that's uncomfortable. Like, no, it was like, ha ha, this is fucking hilarious. And right that, and I was already wildly uncomfortable throughout this movie as it was. And then when that happened, I was like, fuck this, this is terrible. And so the reaction I have read, seen, heard is what bothers me more than this actual film, because this should not be a glorification of Jordan Belfort, of this lifestyle. Um, It should be a, you know, a condemnation of it. I would argue I don't think it's enough of a condemnation, Mm. though, because we see everything from Jordan Belfort's view. We don't see anything from the victim's views. We don't see things from the women in his lives' views, his wife, Teresa, or from Naomi. And I would argue Martin Scorsese, you know, he liked to do drugs back in the day. And I think that still shows through in his movies sometimes that he, you know, he really likes this lifestyle. And I think it's a hard line because... You want to show why this lifestyle is appealing and, you know, that kind of frenetic mayhem and just madness that was going on in stockrooms and brokerage firms. And I think he captures that incredibly well. But also it's kind of there. I don't think the intention or the message that he's trying to convey necessarily is conveyed as effectively as perhaps was set out to. So, yeah, I think. That's my problem with this film is that I, I don't think it's enough of an indictment of Jordan Belfort and of greed and of corruption and capitalism, but I think this is an incredibly well-made film from a technical standpoint, and Margot Robbie's great in it. So I don't, I don't hate this film. I just have uh, issues with it. Megan, you're, you're pissing me off here. 
That's such a well, such a well reasoned <laughs> critique of the film. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> How am I supposed to spin out of control and create faux rage off of you critiquing Martin Scorsese <laughs> when you have thoughtful, well rounded, well balanced film criticism? You're supposed to come on and denunciate it and go, oh, my God, it's killing the children. Burn this movie with fire. And I'm supposed to go, no, art, ah, blah, Martin Scorsese, ah, film bro, ah, and I can't fucking do it. What kind of review is this going to be? Okay. Everything you said is literally everything in my notes. And I don't mean that. I mean that literally, literally. Um. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I noted is that some people would call this Goodfellas light. And I do think that that's fair. I do think that it's fair. I do think that it is kind of a riff on the same kind of that sort of frenzied pace. That's really, honestly, probably one of the best achievements of the movie, because we'll get to some other ones that try this exact same thing. There's this frenzied pace that I think is very hard to maintain. It can be very trying for your audience if they're not completely on board. And... And and this movie is interesting because where Goodfellas kind of crescendos, or at least has a couple of different crescendos, this is one almost continuous crescendo. You know, the, the <laughs> it's a great the, point. You know, it's not building to wild set pieces. It is an essentially an extended wild set piece, and there are escalations, but it it starts off pretty pretty mm-hmm. crazy to begin with. Um, and that doesn't always work. That's a stylistic choice that can be very obnoxious and abrasive if you're not in on it. I what's interesting is what you said about the gut punch because that I think I talked about this in another podcast when I was talking about Goodfellas. I, you know, Goodfellas mm-hmm. is a, a to me is a movie that is very deeply rooted as many of his movies are in sort you know the yeah the duality of his drug lifestyle, Scorsese is you know and that sort of stuff, but also in his Catholic guilt. And in his faith, yes, and yes. I think that Goodfellas, if if you there's a theme in there that is not expressly stated, which is what you know good movies do, they don't expressly state what the theme is, but it's rooted in every performance, <laughs> which is all it's all about kind of the Garden of Eden story. In that uh, there's the you look and you want and you decide to take for yourself, and that 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 action of looking and and coveting something and wanting to take it for yourself always leads to death and violence and breaking apart of relationship and disharmony in the environment and disharmony with your creator and all this sort of stuff. It's, it always leads to a fall of some kind, fall of brokenness of marriages, relationships, trust, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, all the characters, they see something, they're tempted by it, they take it. And temptation and seduction run through a lot of his work. And I think it, it works here as well that this is really the story of what he's, I think, trying to do, and he does it more effectively in Goodfellas, which is probably a perfect film, if such a thing exists. But he's wanting to to tempt us with the superficial charisma and charm of Jordan Pelfer. He's showing us all of these horrific things, but and him and Winter, and they're but they're casting it in such a light that it does feel like a a dirty joke. Like, you know, you shouldn't laugh, but it's still kind of funny. And I have always, from the first time I watched it, I felt like the movie shifts tones and he does what Scorsese does even in Goodfellas. He pulls the rug out from underneath you. And I think the gut punch scene is, it's not funny anymore. This is not, and, it ha- and mm-hmm. the, t- the twist is, it actually hasn't been funny the whole time. And you are just as guilty Thank of you. Jordan 
because you were along for the ride. So that proves how seductive this lifestyle would be. And you are just as, uh, you are just as susceptible to temptation and corruption as these despicable characters in this movie. And I think the comedy gets sucked out of the movie from the point that they're, they have that confrontation. So the fact that people continue to laugh, I think says more about their, probably their view of women or their view of <laughs> violence or their inability to read mm -hmm. media correctly. Because I think that's where the movie's supposed to be like, you know, he does it in Goodfellas, right? Goodfellas ends with, with Ray Liotta's character standing on the doorstep in witness protection in basic suburbia, looking out directly in the eyes of the audience and saying, now I'm just a schnook like you. Now I'm just a nobody like you. And it's an indictment because the whole time, even though you're watching death and murder and violence and abuse and drug addiction, all this sort of stuff, you're, you're, you're kind of along for the ride. You're in, you're, you're enjoying maybe isn't the right word, but you're, you're seduced by it. And then at the end, it's like, Hey, you liked all this stuff too. And you know, the worst thing to be is end up being a nobody, just like the people who are watching this movie. And it, it and this movie doesn't have that button. This movie does not have that sense of, I, I would agree with you, I don't think it goes so, so far as it needs to to convict its audience of the trick that it pulled. It pulled a trick on you, it seduced you, it pulled you into this Belfort's lifestyle. You laughed at the inappropriate jokes, you laughed at the stuff that he was doing. Um, I do think that DiCaprio gives a very, very strong physical comedic performance in this movie. Uh, all the way through. His mannerisms are insane all the way through this. He is so arched that I think it's hilarious. I mean, just everything, that, just every one of his asinine bro culture speeches that he gives to this, you know, call center, you know, to this boiler room, I think is really ridiculous. It's, it's, I think, I think I would have said outside of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think this is his single best performance. Oh, yeah. and, but then I think I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually trumps this. But I think he's doing a lot of the same work that he's doing in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in this movie. I don't think he deserved the Academy Award for The Revenant. I think he probably should have got it for this one. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he should get oh, it for either. I, My favorite I think of he's his fantastic is. Oh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I think he's fine. I think he's fine. My favorite of his is Revolutionary Road. Um, I think he's really good in that. But again, I think he's much better with Kate Winslet. But for me, again, this is Margot Robbie's movie, or it should be. And I think that's the, one of the differences, too, with Goodfellas is that we get Karen's yeah, perspective. Granted, it's it's not very much, but we do no, get her perspective. She's a co-narrator of the movie, We don't yeah. get... Right. We don't get the women's perspectives. And it's interesting because you're clearly supposed to side with them. Like Teresa very early on is like, you're yes. a different person. What's yes. wrong with you? You know, even when she's calling him out and saying like, shouldn't you be stealing from rich people rather than poor people who can't afford it? That's what we're supposed to be as the audience thinking. And same with Naomi when she's horrified at his abuse and his misogyny and the fact that he rapes her is a great piece of editing, horrifying in what happens and transpires between them. But you're supposed to side with the women in yes. his life. You're supposed to be, you know, like he's yeah. disgusting. He's gross. This is awful. And I think the movie is trying to do that Goodfellas ending by having people like looking rapturously at him when he's speaking in New Zealand. 
But at the same time, the real Jordan Belfort is introducing him and it's the real name of his real company when he was doing motivational speaking and sales pitches and all that. So it's, there's something, there's like a blurring of reality and art that's kind of icky. Yeah. It's like for for me, it doesn't, it doesn't stick the landing the way it should. I, I, I like the ending as written. The inner, the actual inclusion of Jordan Belfort in it, I think, is probably a misstep. Um, because it, then it almost feels like an endorsement of him, you know, in some way, which yes. I don't think it's intending to be. I think the ending is to tell us that right, these, right. these grifters, they just move from one grift to another. In the 80s, it was stock market. Now it's Tony Robbins' motivational self-help, business sales, blah, blah, blah. Right now, you know, yep. um, they, they, they just move from one grift to the next. And I think that is the... And I think the movie is ultimately just the same way that it's directed at the audience. It ends with the face of an audience, which is us looking at this thing. And we're looking at the wonder of Scorsese's film. And we're not completely reckoning <laughs> with just how disgusting of a person this is. And it's, you know, it's, it's really, he, he's very, he likes to convict and condemn his audience quite a bit, Scorsese. And yes, yes. I don't think that this movie is, is as, as effective in f- making us feel convicted is the word that I want to use as some of his other works. I will agree with you there. I agree on the front with Margot Robbie because I think as her breakthrough role, I think what's amazing, and you already said this, but this is how in sync we were here, even though we're going to be opposed to mm-hmm. each other on at the score of this movie, is I think her ability to turn on and control her own sensuality is what made her a sex symbol. Her accent here is definitely what made her Harley Quinn but it's her dramatic scenes <laughs> that yes. I think really break through and made her the actress beyond a sex symbol, beyond a comic book character um, that she is. And you see all three in this movie, you know, and it's, you know, it's, yes. it's like, she is that multifaceted player that, that multi-tool player that, you know, some people, they are very good at, at, at managing their sexuality, sensuality, whatever. And that's the unique gift that they have, you know, and you can put that in film and they serve that role. Some people, uh, uh, are, you know, very great dramatic performers and you, that's their gift and that's their role. Some people can, can do more, I guess, broad, if <laughs> what I would call her accent, more <laughs> broad sort of work, kind of s- semi comedic, you know, dramedy sort of stuff. And that's their gift. Um, but I think what makes her a true star, you know, high-powered producer and all the stuff that throughout her career that she's achieved is that she has, she has multiple, she can work in multiple lanes at the same time. Saturday Night Fever territory. That's right. Guinea Gulch. We call the Verrazano Bridge the Guinea Gangplank. Right. So I presume you're Italian? On my dad's side. I'm also Dutch, German, English. I'm a mutt. And you're a mutt. Yeah, I still have family over there, though, in London. My Aunt Emma, she's the best. Very British, you know. She's a classy lady. That explains it, then. Explains what? Explains you. I mean, you're a duchess, right? You're the the Duchess of Bay Ridge. (laughs) Excuse me. Can I get a straw, please? Thank you. So I was, um... A little surprised you asked Christy for my number. What's that? Aren't you married? 
Yeah, but what? Married people can't have friends? We're gonna be friends? Yeah. You wanna be my friend? We're not gonna be friends. You see that in, like, the first breakthrough role. She was on Pan Am on NBC and a mm -hmm. bunch of... Aussie TV, but as yep. far as like, I mean, this is a big movie with a big director and a huge cast of stars and she's on the level with all of them, if not exceeding some of them. So that's pretty incredible. The other person I got to give props to is, uh, Melody, uh, Christine Melody. I think who I love in general, I think she's great. I think she's very good in this movie. And I, I, you know, she's doing a lot of TV and stuff, but I'm wondering like, why, why is she not getting more dramatic roles or more cinema like you know theatrical releases or why is she not more a-list material i guess i don't know that is a good question because she's great in palm springs and she i mean she's great in everything but like she has right. done film work but yeah she should do more but i yeah yeah she definitely should do more but i mean it's interesting thinking about her work when we're talking about margot robbie because i mean not that we need to compare but just thinking about it because we're talking about margot robbie's films Margaret Robbie's working on multiple levels simultaneously, like you're saying. And I think that's yes. just the ability she has to shift and pivot and work on multiple levels is just, it's incredible. And it's one of the reasons why I love watching her so much. And I think she has such a fascinating career. Um, Scorsese it, uh, in an interview compared her to um, like the, the fierceness of like and strength of Joan Crawford and he, the comedy of Carol Lombard. And I think the, the like sex appeal of like Susan Hayward. And I was like, I love that. I love that he's comparing, mm. you know, like these classic Hollywood actresses yeah. like, separate to her and she's embodying all of that. And I just, yeah, I think that's great. But back to Kristen Milioti. Yes. Why isn't she getting more work? Good question. <laughs> well, I think you just, I think you just answered your own question. She's not as multidimensional. Yeah, that's true. Although there are plenty of non-multidimensional actors who get more work. Yeah, so. that's what I, I guess that's the confusion here is, yeah. okay, maybe, you know, I, I, the first time I saw her was on 30 Rock, and I thought she was hilarious in that role. And she can do comedy. She can do dramedy. She can do mm -hmm. serious work. You know, yep. I, it's just, it's I, maybe she needs a better agent. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe it comes down to the Hollywood horse race, right, where there's limited capacity and limited roles for women. And so there was two women in this movie yep. and they were like, well, we can only pick one to have a career. We're picking the blonde. And you, you know, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like we're, yeah. we're going to pick the more conventionally beautiful woman and build on her. And if you don't think that that's what happens, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> it does. It does. You are a hundred percent correct. The thing I will say though, is that I think, and I do like Kristen Milioti a lot. I like her in other things. I don't think she's that memorable here. I think she does. Mm. Her, I think she does her job. Well, I think she does a serviceable job. Um, but Margot Robbie makes an impact and she yes. is, she is just captivating from start to finish. And so I think, I think that's part of the difference too. It's like, Oh, she's blonde. She's gorgeous. She's conventionally attractive and she's really riveting. Great. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. It's but, a home uh, run. It is. But the other yeah. really interesting thing about her is that I was reading an interview that she did with British Vogue a couple of years ago. And she said that everything she's gotten is she's gotten because she asked for it. Like she would write letters and like she wrote to Quentin Tarantino to get so she could meet with him and that's how she got the role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and she's written to other directors to meet with them and so she can get the role. So I think that that's really 
fascinating too yeah. because there is a thing where looking societally women don't ask for what they deserve like in yeah. whether it's wage negotiation or asking for roles or what have you so and i think the fact that she is conventionally gorgeous and blonde and young helps tremendously too of course for the week i'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 i think this is it's not anywhere near as good as good fellas uh but i think i i'm never tempted to watch the movie but anytime i turn it on i cannot turn it off because I think that this is, it's it's the filmmaking, it's the editing, it's the cinematography. It is, again, it's all of the performances all the way across the board. I, I do think Jonah Hill gets a little over the top in some of the stuff that he's doing. Uh, <laughs> your yeah, is, you're not you're you're, you're not uh, you don't enjoy his work. In I don't role. enjoy his work in any role. To be fair, I'm. I'm not a Jonah Hill fan. This is the only thing that I actually kind of dig him in. I think this is kind of. (laughs) (laughs) His performance just does not work for me at all in this. (laughs) I I get why people, well, I get why it would work for you. Like I totally see it, but just for me, I'm like, nope, (laughs) it's just not, not working for me. (laughs) I don't downgrade this movie just because other people can't read between the lines of what this film is doing. I just don't think it's as effective as it thinks it is or as some other people Mm. think it's doing. But I think they're, I think you're right. I think it, and the interesting thing is that, you know, Jordan is an unreliable narrator straight out of the gate. Like the fact that he's describing his Ferrari and it's red and then all of a sudden it shifts to white and he's like, Oh no, 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 no. It was white. Like, like Miami vice. And then when he's talking about how he, drove home and he didn't hit anything. And then we later see like, no, he banged it up and crashed and did everything. So he's a very unreliable narrator. So the fact, and it's, it's interesting reading about him because the former prosecutor who worked on the case to prosecute Jordan Belfort talks in the New York times about how, you know, he had a very um, like self aggrandizing view of himself. Like he thought he was much bigger and more popular at his firm than he really was. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I think that that does very well play into the unreliable narrator. Yes, like he's saying right. all these things, but what's really happening? It's probably not. Yes, it's all wild. Yes, they did all these terrible things, but people probably didn't love him the way he thinks they did. Um, and right. the other thing yeah. that I think is really interesting that also is kind of connecting to Goodfellas, but also interestingly connects to The Godfather, even though obviously Scorsese, you know, that wasn't his film. Mm-hmm. But I'm reminded of the Statue of Liberty in The Godfather scene right before you know, being someone's murdered because it's kind of a corruption of the American dream. And we see that visually in this too. When Kyle Chandler as an agent is on the yacht, it's all the colors are in the American flag colors. Like we see the American flag, but then even when the camera is turned away from it, it's still all red, white, and blue. And we see that throughout the film, red, white, and blue um, to kind of reinforce the American dream and how this is a perversion of that and i think so i think it's i think it's doing a lot i just don't think it's fully effective but i still think it's an incredibly well-made film so for me i'm gonna give this an 8.1 oh that's much higher than i would have thought yeah like i i don't like watching this film i feel disgusting i feel yes. gross yes. it makes me want to take a shower afterwards. I, but i think it's like, supposed this is an to maybe but the but i don't consider this a comedy i consider it a tragedy and i want to take a shower afterwards and i don't find any pleasure or joy in this film at all whereas i you know a lot of people do find it comedic even 
while you're denouncing it, still finding, you know, humor in the outlandish absurdity. And I just don't find that. I don't find the pleasure in that. So for me, it doesn't work. I don't want to see this film again, (laughs) but I think it's a very well-made film. (laughs) So when I bring you back to do a commentary track on it, we watch it live and we we dissect the film. (laughs) You're going to say no? (laughs) No, I'd say yes to that. (laughs) So I I can talk more about what my problems with the movie are. Yeah, I (laughs) I cannot disagree with what you're saying. One, because it's your experience, but also... Um, you're, I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I think Thank it's you. the, it's the <laughs> difference between laughing with something and laughing at something. Yes. And, um, I don't laugh along with them of being like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Throw those little people. <laughs> like I'm, oh my God, that's so <laughs> and just the scene where they, they never refer, they just refer to them as it's the whole time. Oh, it's so like, gross. I'm not laughing so at gross. that. <laughs> But I'm just like, these are the worst people who've ever lived. And the idea that these terrible, horrible, drug-addled narcissists control our economy. Yes. Yes. Is horrific and terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, yeah. So I think we've talked about this one enough. I could go on. No, and that's the thing. I don't don't disagree with you. I, I think it's so funny that we're like saying the exact same things that we agree so much, but just we have different experience. Yes. Yeah. No, level. I feel icky. Honestly, I feel icky when I'm watching it as well, oh, okay. which is why I never feel compelled to watch it. But if it's if it do find myself in a situation like this, I right. watch all the way through, and it's I think it's a very well made film. But it's yes. it it is it it, it 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 makes me feel gross, and mm-hmm. it makes me feel uncomfortable in the same way that some dirty jokes make me uncomfortable. And you're almost <laughs> you're laughing almost out of the awkwardness of it. You're like, oh <laughs> yeah, oh good, you know. Um, <laughs> that's how I feel about this movie. I think to me, I think that's the authorial intent. So I think he's provoking in me what I, he's intending to, and therefore the movie is a success. Uh, what was your rank on this one? Oh, this is, uh, number three. This is my third highest. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of, I know one that you might think is better, but two that you think is better. Yep. Oh, and okay. All right. Well, let's move on to yep. 2015's focus. <laughs> which currently has only a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes. I've been in this game for a really long time. I had what I needed. And then the girl walked in. This is a man's world. So what about the big con? The one where we make so much money, we all retire. This is a man's world. What makes you think you can trust her? But I should trust you. But it wouldn't be nothing. You lost everyone's money. Nothing. And now we're dead. That's what you get when you hire a con man. I still got it. Rated R. Experience it in IMAX. Focus was directed by Glenn Ficarra. It's written by uh, John Requa, I think. Requa. It's triumph return of B.D. Wong, last seen in Jurassic Park. And this may be B.D. Wong's best performance I've ever seen him in. Because it's such a bizarre... <laughs> utterly bizarre performance it's so weird <laughs> it's so weird this movie was released february 11th 2015 in london february 27th 2015 in the united states on a budget of i i, I just i love this and a budget between 50.1 or 65 million dollars <laughs> when anytime they give the stats they're like we either spent 50 or we spent 65 that's 15 million dollars difference yeah that's life changing money difference. <laughs> and they're like, oh, either one. 
Somebody <laughs> who knows <laughs> stole money out of the production budget of this. This oh. was some kind of movies are one of the great mob and have been forever. It's even in Godfather, one of the great mob tax shelters of all time. And if you don't think that these evil corporations that run these studios, that's why it's called Hollywood Accounting, aren't fucking pilfering the money off of these budgets, you're out of your mind. Critics won't say it because they want access to fucking screeners. I don't get very many screeners. <laughs> I'm a weirdo at the weird side of the street, so I can say it. Hollywood is a sham. It's a con. They're still your money. You're, 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 somebody is taking your 401k at the factory <laughs> you work at, and they're investing into a fucking movie, and a Russian oligarch is on a yacht right now, blonde darting little people. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it's true. Listen, it's true. I think capitalism is a sham, so you won't get an argument out of me. <laughs> you know, I, sometimes I'm I'm befuddled. I, I you know come up with a synopsis or whatever for these movies, and sometimes I really can't come up with it because the movies are so simplistic that it's like, what could I say that to spin this around? This is this is a heist movie, con movie. If you've seen one, you kind of have seen them all. I will say here, this is the first time I've seen this one. I had no interest when it came out, as did not many, as did not many other people. This is arguably a flop. Um, but I think the first ten minutes of this film, first nine minutes actually, are crackling with charisma, and but it also feels like you're watching the filament of a hundred watt bulb slowly burning out in front of you. <laughs> And if you ever wanted to watch a movie star lose it, the X factor on screen, this is in the real one. time, in real time, Will Smith loses his X factor in this movie. And I can't explain it because it's not like, well, the movies to me, it's not the movie so bad that it killed his career. That's not really what it is. It's a pretty standard script. If anything, actually, I think the first half is stronger than the second half. Um, but it, it literally, you just watch like the death of a movie star on a screen. It's very strange. It's probably the most interesting thing about this movie. Uh, <laughs> other than the fact that Gerald McCraney, who is Mr. Delta Burke, is in this movie. He shows up in the second half, otherwise known as Major Dad. So that was nice to see him get work. I love that you called him Mr. Delta Burke because I love Delta Burke. <laughs> <laughs> Where's she been? Where's Delta? Good question. <laughs> this season I'm covering a Delta Burke film, uh, well, <gasps> a film Delta Burke is in, which I'm not going to tell you because we don't have time for that tangent. <laughs> 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 well, I can't wait because I love her. <laughs> you just have to listen. I will. Um, what's so strange about this movie is Robbie's character is built into the first act to be like a force in this film, to be a character, to be a co-player, to be, it's almost as if it's like kind of her movie where she's like the mentee slash love interest. And then there's going to be this time jump. And then when we get back to it, we're going to see her as this evolved character. And she's going to con the con man. That's kind of what I, where I thought this was going to go. Yeah. And then when the movie comes back and we have the time jump and we're into this other plot and they're both angling at this guy her character has literally not grown whatsoever in what the three years <laughs> off screen she's no more better at conning than the day that she, that the day he met her honestly maybe <laughs> slightly better she's gained nothing developed not whatsoever and is just sort of there throughout the third act of the film really kind of i wouldn't even say she's a damsel in distress because they're both in distress but 
she does nothing in the back end of this film, really. And then at the mm-hmm. end, they're like, oh, well, she got the watch, so she saved the day. And I'm like, mm. I feel like you had something here. <laughs> you had something. And then you lost it in your script, and you never quite got it back. And I don't. And, and a lot of people said, oh, this movie has too many twists and turns. I don't feel like the movie has enough twists and turns. I agree. I, I think, you know, I think it's, it's, there are mo there. I like this subgenre of film. I like the con movie. I like the heist movie, especially when they're done well, or even when they're done like satisfactorily. I like, I like the oceans movies. Um, I like the, uh, I like the, I like the interplay of like really smart characters who are smarter than everybody else in the room. And I like that when the movie itself is an unreliable narrator and they're kind of, I like when there's there's twist and they're pulling the wool over your eyes and you think you're seeing one thing but you're really seeing another. When it's done sm- smartly or at least semi smartly, I like that. If it's just like now you see me, it's like well, it's all holograms. I'm like okay, well that, that that's not any good. But <laughs> but I like the idea of you know a group of people who are and I really like when we get into the intricacies of some kind of highly specialized group of people. And they're breaking down, like, this is what we do, and this is what it's called. And there's jargon flying around. I don't understand some of it, but I do get – I like that. I like being thrown into those worlds. I like – when the Mission Impossible movies do that, I think that they do that highly effectively. When the Oceans movies do that, you feel like you're a part of this world. And it's almost kind of similar to the cadence cinematically as Wolf of Wall Street, where you're just, like, thrown into this world, and they're throwing information and terminology at you, and it's all a scam, and we're doing this, and we're doing that, and ooh, yeah. You know, and you know, we do this and we take this, then we move it over here, and then we get this, we put it in our pocket, and we do this, we pump this thing, we dump it out. I like that, right? Big Short does that. I mean, quite frankly, a lot of Margot Robbie movies (laughs) have that storytelling mechanic. I like it. So I should like this movie. I don't dislike this movie, but it feels woefully incomplete. It feels like I don't know. It just kind of, I don't want to say it falls apart, but it really feels bifurcated. It really feels like two different movies. One is this sort of sleek, sexy, um, what's the one that uh, Clooney and uh, J-Lo did? Oh, Out of Sight. Out of Sight, yes. It feels like Which sleek, s- sleek, sexy, two people. Can they really trust each other? Mm-hmm. But there's this seduction, and is it part of the game? Is it part of the con, or is there real feelings, or is it just animal attraction? And then, like, that just kind of disappears, and then it just becomes this other movie, which is, I guess, okay. But, like, it's just very, you know what I'm saying? It's very strange. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a very bifurcated film. It is. The film, I, yeah, it just, I don't, the second half of it, I just don't think it works. It just doesn't no. work. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> But I also don't like the first half of the film either. Oh, I did. Yeah. yeah. I, it's not great, but I was no. like, okay, this is passable. I think they have charisma together. I, oh, you know, I, no, I don't. <laughs> I mean, they're oh, fine. no. I think, I think it's very clear that there's sexual chemistry between these two characters and probably the two people behind them. Eh? Yeah. No, <laughs> not for me. Nothing was sizzling for me. Um, yeah, no, it was just very tepid and I found I found the screenplay really tedious. I found this film really boring. I had a hard time getting through it. 
<laughs> really? Yeah, I did. Thank thank God for Margot Robbie and even Will Smith too, because I, I do like Will Smith. I just I don't know. I don't I don't know what it is. I don't think he's a very good romantic lead as a general rule. I don't know why I have to think about it some more and investigate why. But yeah, I I mean I think I think they have a good rapport. But I think it would have been a better rapport if they had just been colleagues or friends, like the way their rapport is in Suicide Squad, which I do not like that film at all, but I like their rapport in that. Um, Yeah, this just didn't work for me at all, at all. But the first half is a lot better than the second half. I will say that. I will will agree with you that I don't think he makes a good romantic lead. However, I think it almost works in this movie because he's such a closed off Mm, character. That's a good point. it reduces the relationship to almost being purely sexual and and purely charisma, mutual charisma between these two people. And so I think, at the, uh, you know, it's not great romance, but I don't <laughs> think this is a romantic film. I think it's a uh, sexual film, for lack of a right, better Right, but I'm not uh, feeling that. That's what I'm saying. It's not just I'm not feeling, like, romance. I'm not feeling, like, sexual energy. Like, I'm kind of feeling nothing. <laughs> Like just nothing. So <laughs> didn't work for me. <laughs> different strokes for different folks, Megan, I guess. Very true. But yeah, no, I just, there were no, I don't know. And and it could be a problem with the cinematography, with the editing in addition to the writing. So who knows? Maybe in a differently edited film, they would have, I would have felt they had tons of sexual chemistry, but yeah, no, here I'm just like, eh. Part of the, part of the key of these types of movies, I feel like is you have to take one of two lanes. And lane one is you, the audience thinks they know what is happening. They think that they're on the inside of the job, the con. Then the third act reveal is actually you've been conned. You're the mark. You've been conned Mm -hmm. the whole time. Right. And I, the first oceans movie, the remake oceans 11, I think does that really well, right? Like, Oh yeah, you thought you saw what we were doing, but we left out all these important details and here's (laughs) what we actually did. Right. And then you start putting the pieces together and you're like, oh yeah. And that's like the fun of it, right? Is like you feel, you know, it's, it's a, it's the fun of when you're learning something and all that information starts connecting in your brain it releases endorphins and those movies can generate that. Mm-hmm. Totally. The other fun of it is when you're actually, um, the audience doesn't know what's happening where you mm-hmm. leave the audience in the dark and you're like, oh, I just, what's, this doesn't make any sense. And I don't, you know, and I, I'm confused the whole time. And then you satisfyingly bring the pieces together. Right. So it, they're, they're, it's either when they're outright deceiving you or when, when they are um, rope doping you and making you feel like, you know, what's <laughs> happening. And then they reveal that they deceived you the whole time. This movie che- chooses neither path. Really? Mm-hmm. It kind of chooses a path sort of, but it really kind of chooses neither path. And it kind of pretty much just tells, especially in the second half, it pretty much just tells its story straightforward with one twist at the end, which I think is fine enough. I think that that twist, I, I don't know if I want to spoil it, but I think <laughs> that that character is ironically, probably the best part of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I feel like, like his, just the entire way that he behaves, the entire way that he talks, the, the scene in the apartment, where he's going through, I think that I think I think he gives maybe one of the better performances of the movie and brings some kind of liveliness, energy. Because in that second half, Robbie is so neutered; she's, she's just barely in the movie. When she is, she doesn't 
she's given nothing to do, nothing to say, nothing to do. Uh, she's just. She's it's trying, a, it's, it's a, but yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a bizarre choice mm-hmm. that in the three years since she was trained by these master thieves, she's gained no experience, no anything. She can barely steal a watch. Like, Wait. what? <laughs> no, but no, she can now lie to seduce him. <laughs> that was her one thing. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because she was not good at the seduction before. Right. Okay, now there's another <laughs> so that's problem. That's one it. thing. <laughs> okay, so I I I watched that you know, the beginning scene when they were at the whatever the bar or cafe mm-hmm. or whatever, and I'm like, okay, here is where it is successful. It's successful because Robbie is such a good performer. You actually kind of believe that she's not good at seducing people. Mm-hmm. The problem is, especially when you're doing a retrospective like we are. I just watched her seduce Jordan Belfort <laughs> to fuck with his head multiple times in this movie. And Margot Robbie has absolute total control on screen over her sensuality and can seduce even in a non-sexual way, millions of people around the world by drawing them into her eyes. So the idea that this woman who it's not that it's just that she's just attractive. That is one of her gifts. That's what we both identified about her. From Wolf of Wall Street. The idea that this woman who one of her strongest gifts is being able to turn that sexual charisma on and use it as a power to her advantage just doesn't have that ability is bullshit. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. So she's doing the best she can to try to convince us that she's not good at it. Right. But it's very evident in every other movie that that she is. So that's like (laughs) one of her calling cards. It's just. It's a kind of a wrongheaded script. I think that's what it really comes down to. I can't really say the direction's bad, the editing's bad. Can't really say the performances are bad. I think it's just it's just kind of an incomplete script. It's just kind of a blah movie. And so for that reason, I'm going to give it a seven out of ten, mostly because I like the genre. It's my number three of the week, middling. Yeah. So I will say the direction is bad. I think the direction is bad. I think the editing is bad. Uh, really? I, I think the pacing in this is terrible. It's so slow. Well, I got another movie for you. I got it's, another movie for you on this list. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, or maybe I'm not. Who knows? We'll find out. I'm surprised. I might be surprised. But yeah, so for me, the, the saving grace in this film is Margot Robbie and Will Smith and the other person who we will not say. <laughs> yes. Because it's a twist. It's a spoiler. But yes, I think the three of them are so good. In other you almost things. want a, a movie with the three of them yeah, doing cons. I do because yes. I like yep. each of them. Yep, just not in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So because uh, yeah. of them, I gave this movie a four point three. Holy shit! I would have given it lower had it not been for the three of them. Wow, I thought yeah. it was satisfactory, but not anything beyond that. I thought it was middling. Um, so what? So that where that puts you at where for the week for you? That's my fourth for the week. Okay. All right. Uh, Fair enough. Jason, why do I need this lawnmower 4.0? Why do I need to get the performance package 4.0? I've got a dirty, old, rusty-ass razor that sits in my shower on that little ledge thing covered in soap scum. Yeah, I might get a few ingrown hairs here or there, but what's the big deal? What's so great? About the lawnmower 4.0. I'll tell you what's so great about the lawnmower 4.0 and the performance package 4.0. The trimmer itself 
I've had, this is the third iteration I've had. This is the sleekest design yet. The advanced skin safe technology has advanced yet again. This thing is waterproof. It comes with an LED spotlight up to 4,000K, baby. So I'm not fumbling around in my dark and dreary shower in the middle of my dark and dreary life trying to figure out how to clean myself up down there so I don't have a stinky basket, so I don't have a stinky hog. My hog runs wild because I use Manscaped 4.0. Come on, I want your hog running wild. I got a little shaver. I got it for nine bucks off of Amazon, wonderful. But do you have a weed whacker that's also waterproof, that also has skin safe technology? Do, do you have to worry about nicks, snags, tugs in your nose holes or your ear holes or your butthole? I don't think so. Do they send you a crop preserver ball deodorant and crop reviver ball toner that will absolutely revolutionize your hygiene game? That's going to entice the ladies and fellas in your life? The loved ones in your life will thank you and you will thank me if you go to Manscaped. And if you get the Performance 4.0, which I think you should, obviously, guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna give you some boxers. They're gonna give you a little nice little travel bag. You're gonna be able to put all your cozy little comforts in your little travel bag. You'll be able to take it around the world. And I wanna get you free shipping around the world and 20% off. Just go to manscaped.com and insert the code binge movies. Get 20% off free shipping with the code Binge Movies, Manscaped.com. That's 20% off, free shipping, Manscaped.com. Just use the code Binge Movies. It's the name of the show. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Well, let's move on to 2016's <laughs> The Legend of Tarzan, which is also a first watch for me, which currently has a whopping 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. My husband is no normal man. He'll come for you. The Legend of Tarzan. Only in cinemas. The Legend of Tarzan was directed by David Yates. What the hell? What is this guy <laughs> doing? The screenplay by Adam Kozad, Craig Brewer. Story by Craig Brewer and Adam Kozad. It's based on Tarzan stories by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which went into public domain in 2020. So you're going to be seeing a lot more Tarzan. The rest of your life. The triumph return of Sam Jackson, last seen in Spider-Man Far From Home. The triumph return of Jim Broadbent, last seen in The Half-Blood Prince. The triumph return of Damon Hansu, last seen somewhere in the MCU. It was released July 1st, 2016 in the U.S., July 6th in the U.K., and July 7th in Australia. On a budget of $180 million, this film made $356.7 million. My one-sentence plot synopsis is Tarzan moves to the suburbs and forgets his roots. I got a lot to say about this movie. I do too. Can I do a synopsis? I normally sure. don't. Yeah. My synopsis is Tarzan single-handedly in slavery. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where to begin, Megan? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson character, who is not a character, by the way, is a real person. I'll get to that in a second. But the, the character, the portrayal, the character in this movie is such an entire misfire. Because from the very first scene he's in, he's like this modern commentator that is breaking the reality of the film. Mm -hmm. When you have to have a guy in a... In a 
in fucking leopard print rags <laughs> swinging on vines with gorillas and apes, <laughs> then we need it to be a fantasy film. And you have to commit to that reality and get your audience to buy into that reality. When you have a character who is speaking as if he's completely from modern time going, yeah, yeah, everybody knows the Tarzan story. You need to do this because you're Tarzan. She Jane. We all know the story. <laughs> this movie is absolutely fucking bizarre on a, on a <laughs> screenplay, editing, pacing, directing, acting level. Nothing works here. Nothing works in this movie. It's, it's two and a half films in one. The first film, which is told completely in flashback, is the conventional Tarzan origin story that you've, they've been doing since the books. It's a combination of books and the stuff from the serials and the movies and the cartoons. And it's all of the everything iconic that you know about Tarzan. But they show that all in snippets and flashbacks because we're 10 years past all that shit. And now we're with a Tarzan who doesn't like being Tarzan. He doesn't want to be called Tarzan. He wants to be John Clayton. He doesn't want to go back to the jungle. He hates the jungle. He's turned his back on the indigenous people and the gorillas that raised him. And he wants to wear suits and live in a castle because he's wealthy and he can't be bothered with helping other people. And it's like, why is that an interesting? Why? Why would you? Why? And Hollywood is obsessed with doing this. Hollywood is obsessed with the IP is we think is popular enough or has enough brand recognition worldwide. That we can make a movie on it. But then we're going to make a movie about how that character who you might like or know or love hates being the character you know and like and love. And the entire fucking movie is a slog of like, oh, how miserable it is to be this thing you love. And it's constantly beating the audience over the head of how, how fucking stupid are you for liking this thing that we just spent $200 million on? <laughs> it's so fucking asinine. I mean, they think it's this clever way of doing like, well, it's an origin story without having to retell the story. Everybody knows. Then just tell a fucking Tarzan story, some Tarzan adventure that's fun and exciting and captivating and has beautiful, colorful imagery and uses the charisma and appeal and talent of your female lead and make a fun goddamn like the 1999's The Mummy or some of these other movies that have come out that people like and adore. Make a fun action adventure movie like an Indiana Jones, like all this stuff with fucking Tarzan in it, make a billion dollars and go the fuck home. What is wrong <laughs> with Hollywood? I don't want to watch this. Oh, Luke Skywalker actually hated being a Jedi. Why the fuck am I watching this? Why am I watching this? Oh, well, actually, this sucks. And this was horrible. And that thing you loved, it was terrible for that character. And they're just sad on the inside all the time. That doesn't add depth, especially when you're talking about fantasy movies. It just bogs this shit down. And now you've got me stuck in the real world where it's just where my life is fucking sad. I don't need to watch sad Tarzan or sad <laughs> Superman mope around because he doesn't want to fly and he doesn't want to save children in burning buildings or cats out of trees or he doesn't want to swing in the, in the fucking trees with his gorilla half brother. I, it's stupid. This is so stupid. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is they still throw in the fucking uh, Tarzan origin anyways. So you go to all of this length, not to tell the origin story. Then you tell the origin story anyways in fucking flashback. Fuck you. And then the other half of the movie is 
Well, actually, it's three and a half movies. The other third movie this is, is, well, it's the real life story of George Washington Williams and his interactions with King Leopold III, who this was a, a, a I don't remember if he was free or if he was a former slave, but he ser- it was one of the first African-Americans to serve in a state house of reps, the Ohio House of Representatives. He got bored oh, nice. serving in Ohio. He traveled over to Africa back when that was a big thing where all these explorers were going into Africa, in particular the Congo. And he got entangled in the Congo Free State and the efforts of King Leopold III. And he was working as an achete for King Leopold III, who was a a Dutch king, until he saw the mistreatment of the Congolese people who were building the railroads for the Dutch government and they were being enslaved, right? Right. And this guy had just served in the Civil War and was just, you know, had, had lived through the Emancipation Proclamation, all this sort of stuff. So the letter he writes in this fucking movie is real. And this is the guy who would actually coined the phrase uh, crimes against humanity, because that's what he wrote in his letter. He, he spent his time there working for the king, but he was actually almost like a spy collecting information and getting sworn affidavits and all this sort of stuff to, to submit all of this information to the world's governments including King Leopold, who he wrote directly to, which took some balls back then. And he's basically like publicly shamed him for enslaving the Congolese people. That's a movie worth making. It does not belong in this Tarzan movie. And by the way, that's like one (laughs) facet of George Washington Williams' life that's interesting. Maybe one of the lesser interesting facets of his life. If you read this guy's story... He, he lived maybe one of the most interesting lives of any human being ever, especially at a time when it would be exceptionally difficult to do anything he did as a black man in America and as a black man in the world stage. It's just incredible. He's a scholar. He was a warrior. He was a fighter. He was a soldier. He was a politician. He was a peacemaker. He was a, a liberator. All these things. Fantastic. Make a movie about him. Don't make him a character who is all he does is fucking... C- commentate over fucking Tarzan tropes. And the same thing with Christoph Waltz. Well, with, <laughs> when you finally in this movie get the fucking Tarzan yell, finally, they uh-huh. just have to do the meta joke of, well, what's that? That's Tarzan. But he doesn't sound like I thought he would because <laughs> it's not the famous George Weitzmuller, uh, some other modernized, gritty, dark reboot scream that he does. Fuck off. And then the movie ends with sequel bait where he's finally Tarzan in the fucking leopard print swinging to the trees. And aren't you excited? Now he's, now he's, now he's the Tarzan you wanted to see three fucking hours ago when you pulled your <laughs> ass into this theater and spent $15 to watch this movie. Thank I, God I didn't spend $15 watching oh this Oh my movie. God. <laughs> It's, it's, it's because it's like, we're trying to do the Tarzan myth, but there's racist implications, the Tarzan myth, potentially white saviorism. So we got to put this real story in here to obfuscate and change the mythology. And you could have just wrote an adventure script and worked around that in a different way. This is so stupid. It's, it's, it's 2010s bad IP filmmaking through and through It's superheroes who hate fucking being superheroes. And it's, it, this is movie making by committee and Margot Robbie gives the worst performance of her career in this movie. She is God awful in this film. Oh, her accent here is a complete mess. Her performance is a mess. Every note she hits is wrong. 
I, I, I disliked everything about her and Skarsgård in this movie. We've seen Skarsgård basically do this again much better in The Northman this year. And I just watched yes. that fucking movie. I, and, and the entire Great time, movie. it's about how John Clayton has to become de-civilized to become Tarzan again. And there's no distinguishable difference between when he's finally Tarzan again and when he's John Clayton. He doesn't speak different. He doesn't act different. Nothing. Other than he His swings on by. His Huh? <laughs> His clothes are different. He has oh, a loincloth instead of a suit. Yeah, it's, but the, the, the loincloth is, is his fucking trousers that got tore up progressively throughout the film. But you see, the trousers are a metaphor for how the all these pieces of civilization have to be removed for him to get back to his roots. Ah, oh, fuck off. This, this is awful. Special <laughs> effects are terrible. This movie looks like shit. This was all filmed in England. I will say this. Okay, I will say this. The per, some of the production design was good, and here's why: because they were able to, to kind of semi-convincedly convince you that the hillsides of England were actually like part of the Congo, and some of this was shot on sound stages, some of it was on, mm-hmm. on physical locations. None of it was shot in Africa, and mm-hmm. the, some of the physical stuff. I really did aerial photography in in Central Africa and along the Congo, but the actual on the ground stuff was all elsewhere. And when they're in real places with real plants and stuff like that, it's semi-convincing. Of It looks decent as a jungle movie. Anytime it goes to digital, it looks like shit. It looks like absolute shit. I don't know. It's, it's, this movie fucking sucked. That was a lot. <laughs> I have so much to respond to. I, I, oh, and also they, they decide to throw in a priest rape joke. Margaret Robbie delivers a yep. rape joke up with Christoph Waltz that implying that he was raped by his priest because he had a close relationship with him. And then yep. I don't want to bring make this too heavy. I don't understand how we live in a world where, where male sexual molestation is still funny. Agreed. I don't think any rape jokes are funny ever. Right. I don't understand <laughs> ever. It. But, but like, it seems like most of Hollywood most have sort of like okay we're, we can't put any we can't really joke about rape anymore but being raped by a if you're a boy and you got molested by a priest we can throw that in that's still on the table and i don't understand it i don't understand why that's still allowed it is very strange and it's also really strange in a film that's supposedly trying to set the right to the wrongs of Tarzan's origin stories and talk about colonialism straight out of the gate, talk about white supremacy, talk about racism, talk about enslaving people. I mean, all of those things literally are text on screen before the story even begins. So I like, I'm like, okay, they're trying to infuse racial justice here. They're trying to infuse a colonialist perspective and how damaging and detrimental that is. And of course, we're going to get that, you know, the quote, savage Tarzan is really the enlightened one all along. Of course, we're going to get that. And actually, the white people are the ones who are, you know, brutal and awful and, and horrible. And, you know, you get that kind of in that the first one of the first scenes where you see a spear come through the mist and then the white people retaliate by, you know, a Gatling gun and, you know, guns. So you kind of get that. But yeah, it's like, wait a minute. If that's what you're trying to go for, 
why are you very much positioning Tarzan or John Clayton as a white savior? Because this is a white savior narrative. He literally is stopping slavery single-handedly here in the Congo. And why are you getting a priest rape joke? It's very bizarre. Um, yes. I agree. It's it's totally wrong. It's It's strange. It's weird. I want to go back to what you said about you talked about the dourness of this and you know I don't want to see Superman <laughs> moving around or Luke Skywalker. I have to I have to disagree. So I actually really like quote gritty reboots and I I actually enjoy that tremendously. I like seeing things from a different lens or a different angle. The one thing I have to say about Luke Skywalker is that all of the Jedi realize by the end they become pacifists. But that's a whole that's another show, that's another conversation, but I can't let it go because so many people talk about how oh Luke hated being a Skywalker or uh, a Jedi, not a Skywalker. And it's like no, all the Jedi end up becoming pacifists by the end and they all hate fighting and they all realize that war is not the answer and militarism sure, is wrong. But pacifism anyway. doesn't mean that my entire life has been a lie and everything I've accomplished, everything, all of my adventures that you had fun with as a child, I hate resent every single one of them you can grow as a character and be a pacifist mm -hmm. and be an yep. enlightened character and not retroactively critique your audience for enjoying the ip that got them in the door in the first place i don't think that's what's happening but again i think i think for me it's because i watch all of the like Star Wars, they, like the shows, like sure. Clone Wars and Rebels, which are great and wonderful. So I don't actually think that's what's happening. We're going to, again, I feel like that's another conversation. We may have to agree to disagree on that because it would be a very long conversation. But I actually, so that element of it, I actually do enjoy. And I actually kind of- That element of Tarzan you enjoy. I like that element movie. in Star Wars and I like that element conceptually- in Tarzan, not in its execution. I think it's okay. terrible, okay. but I like it in theory. It could have been interesting. It could have been interesting. What does it mean for Tarzan, who is from two completely different worlds, trying to navigate that? What does that look like? Does he, you know, hate civilization? Does he hate that he didn't come from a more, quote, civilized place? Like, I think that's interesting to explore. That's not happening in this film. <laughs> this film is not really interested in that. And so I like, again, in theory, that it's starting 10 years later. That could have been really interesting. It could have been a really interesting commentary. But it's just not. This is a slog. This is boring. This was awful. You're very right, like, talking about how it should look colorful. Like, I grew up watching the Johnny Weissmeller, Maureen O'Sullivan, yeah. Tarzans. And they were black and white, but they still popped. They still felt colorful. Yeah. And the visuals were captivating. And they it was charming. And, you know, I'm sure if I went back and watched them, there I'm sure there are, you know, problems as far as racist things and sexist things. I'm very sure. I have no doubt about it. But I will say they were fun. And I enjoyed watching them. And, you know, you bring up The Mummy, which I think is such a great example because it's such a fun film. And as I'm watching this, I thought of Raiders of the Lost Ark 2, which I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a great film, of course. But interestingly, what, I, what made me think of it was the scene where Rom and Margot Robbie, who I actually don't think she's terrible in this. I think she's fine. I think she's the one enjoyable thing in this movie. Um, this very murky, boring movie. But the what the thing that's weird is that they're having this dinner, this like fancy dinner, and it reminded me of Marion Ravenwood in 
Raiders of the Lost Ark yep. having a dinner. And it's like there's this and and it, it's not just in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not just here. It's in Beauty and the Beast. It's in numerous things. Pirates where of the Caribbean. A, yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean where a woman who is captured is forced to have a civilized quote unquote dinner with her captor and put on a nice dress, get dressed in a nice dress. Right. And it's like, and it's clearly to wield the dude is wielding his power over her, which is gross, but it's also like, it's supposed, it's framed as if it's supposed to be a seductive gesture or romantic gesture. And it's just bizarre. And I don't know why it's here. Like it just doesn't fit. It also doesn't fit Christoph Waltz's character or what his motivations have been at that point. No, no, no. No. Cause the whole reason she's there is to lure Tarzan. Correct. That's it. It doesn't give a shit about her. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, you're exactly right. And it almost feels like, well, this this is a scene that I've seen in other adventure movies. So I'm going to write it into this movie, but it doesn't make right. any sense with the story no. that you're telling. No. And again, just pick a lane. Okay, if you want to be a more realistic, gritty, we're going to deal with the implications of colonialism through the Tarzan story, there's a way to do that. But that's clearly more of a drama. Mm-hmm. If you want to do a adventure Tarzan movie with explosions and guns and and tribal conflicts and you know fights and Gatling guns and how many fucking riverboats these people get on that blow up and all this sort of <laughs> so stuff. Many I mean, boats. yeah, so many riverboats. You know, um, then that's a different type of movie. That's a mm-hmm. fun adventure movie that maybe you shouldn't bog down completely with how sad everything is all the time, because that is antithetical to the tone that you're trying to create. And that's what I'm really talking about. There's so many contradictory tones in this movie. It feels as if it was assembled by committee. It's like, well, we want to make a Tarzan movie, but we can't make it racist. So we should probably deal with it. Okay. So we, we deal with it in the most ineffectual way asinine way yeah asinine way <laughs> and then uh but you know we still got to get to we want to make new fans and we want to get kids to be excited about tarzan because we want to make sequels <laughs> and so we still need to be an adventure movie and you know and there's stuff about tarzan that people really love so we got to include it but it's also kind of cheesy so we got to make fun of it too and it's all <laughs> of these things at the same time it wants me to take serious the death of his gorilla mother kala and at the same time, it wants me to laugh at the idea of like, oh, what are you, Lord of the Apes? <laughs> what a stupid concept. That is the concept. That's the concept. This guy's the Lord of the fucking apes. He was a human baby raised by gorillas. They, mm-hmm. He would learn their ways. He's in touch with nature. His best friend's a fucking elephant. His other buddy's a cheetah. They dance around and, <laughs> you know, and it's so iconic. And I get, and I get it that yes. it, it isn't anymore, but it was so iconic. Even its parodies were iconic. George mm-hmm. the Jungle is a Tarzan parody. Everybody knows the yell. Even in our childhood, Tarzan ephemera was everywhere. Even when they weren't, they, they did make some Tarzan movies in the 80s. Not good. But no. <laughs> the ephemera of Tarzan was everywhere. The imagery of Tarzan mm-hmm. was everywhere. When Rocky does a commercial, there's a there's a Tarzan parody in there. And then it's a caveman <laughs> parody and all this sort of stuff. Tarzan is such a huge iconic thing for 50 fucking years or if not longer and, you, and this is the movie that you fart out this is it <laughs> when it should be pirates of the Caribbean, like a pirates of the caribbean or again if you want to make your sad dramatic movie make your sad dramatic movie if you want to make pirates of the caribbean make pirates of the caribbean or raiders of the lost ark or the mummy but you can't try to do both because then it's like who is this for it's not exciting it's not thrilling mm-hmm. it's not deep 
it's just nothing. It's a muddled, gray, ugly, murky mess of a film. And mm-hmm. everybody in it stinks. Samuel Jackson stinks in this movie. <laughs> I, I just, I want his character, who again, who's a real person, give me his real story. Tell that story through his lens. Make that movie, because that's actually his fucking story. And then give me a fucking adventure Tarzan movie. <laughs> you know, the, I agree with you 100%. The only problem is, is that he was probably the Trojan horse here. That you're never going to get a movie made about yes. a black man like that. So that, yes, put that, him in that, here where we you're, can. You're exactly right. And that was my thought process as I was watching. It was like, it almost at times feels like, well, somebody really wanted to write this guy's story. Right, right. And they couldn't. They couldn't get it greenlit. Mm-hmm. So they took parts of their script and they were like, well, we'll make it with an IP. We'll put Tarzan in it. And then we'll be able to tell part of the story because it's an undertold story. And I get it. Yeah, you're, I, I, I agree with that. But unfortunately, this doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean work. it was done well. Doesn't mean it was done well. No, because <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> I say at this point, fuck it. I say Ellis shit's going into public domain. Somebody just needs to make like. Watchmen. What I'm really saying is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Somebody just needs to take oh, Quarterman, yes. Quartermain and Buck Rogers and fucking Tarzan and whoever else is falling in Winnie the Pooh, whoever else is falling in the public <laughs> domain, the put them in a fucking movie together, put them in an adventure series together, you know. And this is just why can't we just get back to having some fun in the theaters? I don't understand why every movie has to be everything. Why can't some movies just be good at one thing? It's a good question. Ugh, Probably because they're trying to appeal to the widest audience possible, which I think from a business stance, people think makes sense. I don't think it does, though. And from an artistic sense, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. No. And this no. movie failed. And so many of these movies, just like this, especially from yeah. this era, fucking failed. And why did they fail? Yep. And, and people, as soon as I said, hey, we're going to cover large Legends of Tarzan, everybody's like, blah. It's like, you know, and it's just like, I don't blame them. But so that's the opinion yeah. of, there's a whole era. There's going to When we're done, when we're dying, we're going to look back. and There's going to be basically 15 years where most of the movies are absolute dog shit. Most of the mainstream movies are just, they're all, there's going to be so many Legends of Tarzan. And we're just going to be like, what happened? It's going to be a blight on the history of Hollywood where people are just looking back and being like, what culture was dead? What happened? To me, this film is tantamount to a road sign to the end of Western civilization. We, we are in the dark <laughs> ages creatively. We are in a desperate need of a creative renaissance in Hollywood or whatever Asian film markets going to emerge once America completely collapsed. And that's what this movie is. It's a harbinger of doom. <laughs> well, he, not to be not to be a Pollyanna on this, but here's the thing, though. I agree from a mainstream, big budget, tenpole perspective. You're right, but he, there's always been great art. You just have to find it. You just have to know where to get it because there are each year. I could come up with tons of films that are vastly superior to this, sure. and so could numerous people who watch a ton of films and. That's the thing, though. You have to look at the indie films, the art house films, the unusual films. You have to look at different spots. You can't be just expecting great films from your big budget mainstream films because you may get thing. it, but Here's you're the probably thing, though, not going to get it. Here's the thing, it. though, Megan. An indie film 
and all of these more artistic films, which I love and support and like and enjoy, they're all fucking sad. They're all about sad people doing <laughs> sad things and they're bleak and they're existential. There is a thrill to going to your multiplex or going to your local theater with 300 strangers and actually enjoying what you're seeing on the screen in a visceral entertainment way. And mm -hmm. Hollywood no longer knows, for the most part, how to make those movies. I don't disagree with that either. And that's sad. I'm that's a lost art form <laughs> in and of itself. And that's what I'm saying. The, mm -hmm. You know, it's, yeah. So I give this thing, I actually lowered my score as I talked about it. So I gave it a two out of 10. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> two out of 10, it's the worst of the week. I hated this movie. <laughs> it was like... If you gave this anything remotely nine out of ten. Be <laughs> I know. Nine out of ten. I hated it, but nine out of ten. It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you as far as going to the, the theater. And what I think of is, again, you got to go to film fests, you, which not everybody has access to. Not everybody has the time or the money to do it. But that is where you're going to find some great films that are not necessarily dour and depressing and bleak and nihilistic they're so, period pieces anyway. with two women who may or may not be in love with each other one of, them, one of <laughs> them's mean, a countess I mean, the other that's one's my a, dream but the other no. one's a painter one's a countess <laughs> it's a whole yeah listen i love portrait of a lady on fire a whole hell of a lot but that, that's, that's not a fine film but there's 50 yeah. films in the indie world that are just like that movie that's a whole oh, no. we've, yes oh, we've no. talked about it there's a whole no. subgenre about period piece lesbian thrillers that's that's <laughs> they just crank those out once we get one of them once a year it's just as stereotypical in the indie world as tarzan is to the mainstream I could not disagree more. Yes, it is a sub-genre, sub but that doesn't mean they're cranking them out. We are in dire, desperate need of more queer cinema. But again, that's a, that's a whole other tangent. You can, but queer cinema doesn't have to be two ladies in Victorian England. I didn't say it did. <laughs> I didn't say it did. But I also get really irritated when people are constantly railing against period films of queer uh, stories because I love period queer stories. But do you okay? Do you love period films in general though? Depends. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I it depends see. on the quality of the writing and the acting and yeah. so on and so forth. But no, the reason I personally like period queer cinema so much is because it shows we've always been here. Queer being queer is not a trend. It's not a fad. It's not something that just happened in the last fifty years. We've always been here, and queer people are everywhere. So I like it for that reason. And also, Portrait of Lady on Fire. Celine Sciamma is my favorite filmmaker. It's a brilliant film. I love it. But actually, what films I was thinking of in a film fest were I was actually thinking of cult films and horror films. For instance, like the Boston Underground Film Festival, which I love going to each year, but haven't because of COVID. But anyway, seeing a really weird, fun horror film in a crowd of people is great. So I don't disagree. But not everything is nihilistic. You just, again, have to hunt for them. It's a little harder to find them. So, so you're but saying, anyway. hey, not everything is nihilistic. What you need to find is really weird horror movies where people get this figure without <laughs> brighten your mood. <laughs> Sometimes that's what happens, you know? Sometimes a weird horror movie just fits the bill for joy and, and entertainment. Here's my point, Megan. I love independent cinema, but if, you, if somebody's going to sit here and tell me that independent cinema doesn't have its own cliches and tropes. Oh, of course it does. Then the tropes are everywhere. We've covered it with Manny and Lowe and a bunch of these other movies, all oh, these fucking Manny mumblecore sad woman movies. It's just like, oh, God. 
Was it? Uh, what was the other one? The Alan Moyle one. Uh, uh, with oh, the girl, God. Rockford Girl or whatever the fuck it was called. That movie. Yeah, that was, right? That so brutal. that's, you know, it's brutal. <laughs> it so brutal. There, there is bad independent cinema. Oh, of course. There's, yes. There are bad films everywhere. I'm just saying, but I, I hear it from a I hear it from people year after year after year. There's nothing good. There's nothing good. Cinema's dead. There's nothing good. And I'm like, no, you just haven't seen what's good or you haven't found it. And maybe you have to look a little harder or, you know, just do a little more work, which again, not everybody has access or time to. I fully understand that. Here's, here's the other thing. Tarzan came out shockingly almost 10 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that, on the whole, a lot of main, more mainstream movies are better now than they were in this period. But I think this, that, that 2010s decade, when we're getting the Total Recall reboot and the RoboCop yeah. remake and the Tarzan remake and all of these just like dour, boring, bland, muddy, murky, <laughs> poor, like just, yeah. ugh, just like, we're just going to take the thing that you love and make it fucking sad and then spend $200 million <laughs> on it. And then, you know, focus on the, just the absolute worst parts of it. And then, you know, uh, it's just, uh, the, so many of them are so forgettable and so terrible. I think the 2010s, one of the worst decades for mainstream films ever. Really, truly. Wow. Do. I'd have to go back through and look at my lists for what I had, but probably not a lot of mainstream things. Cause I no. usually don't have a lot of mainstream things on my top lists. but yeah, I, Getting to my score, I give this a 3.3 because it's pretty terrible. It was boring. It was awful. And like I said, I don't mind uh, I don't mind a kind of darker take or depressing take, but you got to be really scintillating. You have to have a crackling script. You have to have really swift pacing. It should be vibrant to look at in your cinematography and production design. And this is just not everything is gray. Like everything is gray. And I do applaud this film for CGI animals. I mean, you'd have to, for most of the things like a mid air slow-mo punch between a gorilla (laughs) and Tarzan, which I can't believe we didn't even talk about. Yeah. But it sounds like that. See, but that seems like it'd be a lot more fun than it is. It's not. When I describe it, it sounds fun. No, I couldn't stop laughing though. I'm like, this is absurd, but not in a good way. I was laughing at it. Not with, (laughs) but yeah, but I do applaud CGI animals because I personally do not like the use of animals in films. So I do like that, but that's really it. I like Margot Robbie. I like CGI animals. I like that they talk about colonialism, but this movie is torturous. It's not good. I and, don't think you and should you're have right. a... Alexander. I was going to say, you're also right. Alexander Skarsgård was so much better in this role in The Northman, which I love. Yes. A film I love. Yeah. Don't watch this. Watch The Northman. Watch The if, Northman. Watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. Watch The Mummy. <laughs> if your movie is dealing with the horrors of colonialism and you punch a gorilla in the face... <laughs> That's that is the that's what I'm getting at in my review. Those two things don't no, go together. You could either make a movie where you where you are in a fist fight with a CGI gorilla in slow motion in midair. You can make that movie, or you can make a movie about colonialism. But you can't do fucking both unless it's at Bollywood. Bollywood could do. Ooh. Well, I was going to say, I'm greedy, and I think you can do it, but you have to be a really good filmmaker to do it. And I think that most people are not good enough to do it. So you're right. You have to you have to pick a lane. You have to pick something. But I think if you're really, really good, you could get like tones. You could get some subversive commentary going on. But 
yeah, no, not this film. <laughs> so what you're saying is you want a Paul Schrader Tarzan movie? Ooh, no, probably not. Because <laughs> I've got issues with him too. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All right. But First Reformed, I love. I love First Reformed. All right. Moving on to 2017's I, Tanya, which currently has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was the best figure skater in the world for a minute. Things got out of hand. We're with the FBI. What did you do? I never did this. Did you know about the attack? I mean, come on! I, Tanya was directed by Craig Gillespie. It was written by Stephen Rogers, not Steve Rogers. Haha, <laughs> you get it? It's a triumph return <laughs> of Sebastian Stan from the MCU, triumph return of Bobby Cannavale from the Ant-Man films in the MCU. It was released September 8th, 2017 at TIFF, December 8th, 2017 at uh, uh, in the U.S., I believe. Uh, on a budget of $11 million, it made $53.9 million. You think you know the story of Tanya Harding, and maybe you do, but you probably don't, but you might. Um, I didn't think about this at the time. And this is no slight against Margot Robbie. I think it's great in this film. But why wasn't this Amy Adams? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, everything I've read about the film, Margot Robbie was attached early on and read the script and like was hungry for this script and wanted to do it. So I don't I don't know how many people they considered bef- or how many other people they considered besides Margot Robbie. But Was her did she help produce this one? Was she a she producer did. on this? Okay. She did. Yeah. Yeah. So she might have been one of the people to get the story off the ground and get the movie made and hence took the role the lead role. It's good for her. Yeah, cuz I was going to say the script came first um cuz uh, Steve Rogers um, worked in rom-coms and wanted to do something different. And he watched the documentary on Tanya Harding, mm. the 30 for 30, and was kind of riveted by it. And then he reached out to Tanya Harding. Like he wrote to her. First he called her and then like tracked her down. And then they met and he talked to her and and got kind of the rights to do it and all of that. So I know the script came first. But yeah, but it seems like just from what I've read about it, Margot Robbie was in pretty early. But it's funny. I think Amy Adams probably would have done a great job. But I think, I think Margot Robbie is outstanding in this. I think this is one of, if not her best, one of her absolute best performances. And I think this is just incredible. So I, I can't even imagine anyone else in this mm-hmm. role. To me, it's Margot Robbie through and through. This is her role. She made this. It to me encapsulates every single facet of everything she does great throughout her entire filmography. It shows her vulnerability, her humor, her, um, her rage, her audacity, her tenacity kind of, it shows and showcases everything. And it's such a layered and nuanced performance and I just, I was blown away by it and I love it. I saw it in theaters when it originally came out and haven't watched it since watched it for this show and really liked it in 2017. Uh, it's obviously not my number one, so I didn't like it as much this time around. And this is a question that's floating around the universe as we record this. And I, so I'll just ask you, is this mm-hmm. poverty or sadness porn? I don't think it's either. You don't think so? Not at all. What what separates this from other movies about the abuse that women suffer? And we're just focusing on the abuse of 
women or poor people and look at these poor people and isn't it kind of funny and what separates oh, Well, those it? are two, I was like, those are different things because I mean, there's the abuse of women, there's mm-hmm. poverty. They're not necessarily synonymous because I mean, women get abused in every socioeconomic sure. status level. So um, I think of them as different because I think there's a few things happening here. Um, one, I don't think it's poverty porn because I, it's not relishing in the fact that she's impoverished. It's showing that class was an issue for her right from the start. Mm-hmm. And classism was what – I mean, even before this incident – and I remember I remember watching figure skating even before this, quote, incident because they call it the incident mm-hmm. in the film. And she was – always talked about in a very weird way. Like she was talked about like not being as feminine, not as dainty, not as demure as other figure skaters. And that certainly continued. Um, And so that there's a very classist element to that because she doesn't look the part. And I know the film addresses that too. So to me, it's not poverty porn. It's showing how she was, she had a disadvantage compared to the wealthy skaters she was competing against. So I'm actually really glad that that's incorporated into the film. And I would be kind of pissed off if it wasn't because it's such an important piece of her story and of the media narrative in general. Um, And as far as the abuse angle, that's also a really important piece of the story. The fact that she was abused by her mother, the fact that she was abused by her husband, um, which he disputes, she does not. Um, so yeah, I don't think of, I don't think it's relishing in it. I think, and I, nor do I think it's making light of it, nor do I think it's making comedy out of it. I think. But the film has a comedic tone and Alison yeah, is a comedic does. character, but it's also the principal, mm-hmm. one of the principal abusers in the film. Her tell it, I would operate on her daily without anesthesia. Please. One fucking time. I hit her one time with a hairbrush. You're a terrible stump sucking loser. What? A child sometimes wants to be corrected. Answer me when I talk to you. When I felt this, I gave her criticism. Stop that. Said I was soft. Don't talk back to me. I don't know, Tony. I would never be with someone who fucking hit me. You hit dad. That's different. Overall, I mean, the movie, there are comic beats in yeah, scenes right. where she's being jacked up against a wall and they hit a comedic beat. A lot of the problems you had with Wolf of Wall Street, I find those exact same issues in the I movie. think the takeaway is that you're never going to get the truth out of her. This is this is her truth. This is this is the story she has told herself and the um the director, Craig Gillespie, said this in Vanity Fair that the ta- that is the takeaway that, you know, everybody comes up with their own narrative and that's how they get through life. And but isn't yeah, that is, the same ex- thing that's happening that, in Wolf of Wall Street? No, it's not. I that's don't jo- think no, it is. Is Jordan Belfort self-aggrandizing? Well, I tell you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why I think that's different. I don't think it's the same because – it's not a glorification of her. It's not a glorification mm. of her life. It's not a glorification of what she did or what she knew or of poverty or of abuse. And I think that's the big, big difference. There's no salaciousness here. There's no there's no appeal. There's no allure here. It's 
isn't this tragic? Doesn't this suck? And that's kind of the tone it's taking. And I think what it's doing is it's adding another layer to her Mm. and to like, it's showing her perspective. Like, Hey, here's my, you've heard all of the Mm -hmm. media conversation. Here's my perspective on this. Here's what I say happened. And yes, she's completely an unreliable narrator. We get that straight out of the gate too. And we're seeing different things and we see, you know, Jeff Galuli's perspective and she, and as she's shooting a gun at him, she's like, this is bullshit. This didn't happen as she's breaking the fourth wall, of Mm -hmm. course. So we're seeing that, that the film is playing with narrative. It's playing with POV. And so I think for me, that's why it's a much better film in when we're looking at truth and we're looking at endorsement and we're looking at, you know, who who can you rely on? You can't rely on her narrative. It's not true. Parts of it, I'm sure, are true. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure she was abused. I'm sure she was impoverished. Yes, she was denigrated because she was poor and she had homemade costumes. Um, but yeah, but it's not a glorification of that. It's not wallowing in that. Yeah, but the difference is America doesn't glorify poverty, which that's the story that we're telling here, right? Is that mm-hmm. she, despite her talent, she's not accepted because there is a classist element to figure skating, right? Yes. In a, in The Wolf of Wall Street, the glamorization is the glamorization of wealth, which is actually true to American culture. These mm-hmm. are the people that we glamorize, despite how despicable they are. So I think it would be untrue to the narrative, especially since it's coming from Jordan's perspective, that it wouldn't be glamorized to some extent. That's the that's the trick the movie's trying to play on its audience that I, I agree with you. I don't feel like it fully accomplishes. But to me, it's a little bit like comparing. It's a similar storytelling mechanism, unreliable narratives, events, time jump, stuff told out of order, breaking the mm-hmm. fourth wall, which seems to be something that really appeals to to Margot Robbie, she does it. She does it again in Suicide Squad. Has that this the mm-hmm. Birds of Prey has it. It seems to be yeah. a, a narrative thing that she kind of has. Uh, even Focus kind of has that to some extent a little bit. Um, so it seems to be something that appeals to her as a producer and, and somebody who goes after these projects. Since we know thanks to you that she's the one that's pursuing them. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just think that these are movies that are much more akin to each other than you would think at the surface, but they're dealing with two different classes of people. And so they're taking on the perspective of what we think about classes of people as the audience. And also what those characters think about themselves. I talked about, you know, Wolf of Wall Street is so over the top because Jordan Belfort's a malignant narcissist. Mm-hmm. He, he is self aggrandizing. So they, that's, that's the tone of the movie because it's his film. I, Tanya, or Tanya is a kind of sad, unreliable character. So that's the tone of the movie we get. I don't see one being more successful as that than the other. I think maybe one tone is maybe more appealing than the other to certain people. I think one story, I think Tanya's story is the story we haven't gotten as much of as we've got a lot of Jordan Belfort stories in Hollywood. Yes. A lot. So I, <laughs> <laughs> a lot. And that's the yes. thing because he's he's a wealthy white man. Of course, yes. we get a lot of wealthy white man stories. We yeah. don't get a lot of impoverished women stories, whether they're white or of, you know, a person of color. We yeah. don't get those stories very often. And so I think that's what's really important is that we're seeing her perspective. And 
Yeah. And I, you know, I've thought about this a lot even before this movie came out because I was an anthropology major and my mentor, who was an anthropology professor, wrote about whiteness and classism in the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding story and how the media framed it. And so thinking about race and white femininity and how Nancy Kerrigan was the right kind of woman and how Tanya Harding was, quote, white trash. And that term is an extremely racist term. And so thinking about whiteness and race and classism and poverty and femininity and kind of all of that and how it all, you know, intertwines and commingles. I was coming into this movie with all of that and then watching this film and I'm like, and then seeing Margot Robbie's powerhouse performance, I'm like, yeah, this film nails it. And I, and here's the thing. I don't think it's a perfect film. Like I, in my favorite review of this film at Vulture by my favorite critic, Angelica Jade Bassian, she talks about how the film falters when it gets away from Margot Robbie. And I completely agree. I think the film, like, I don't think the film should ever leave her. Like, I think it should just be on her the whole time because when it goes to Jeff Galuli, I, I don't think it's very good because I don't think Sebastian Stan is that strong of an actor. You know, when it goes to the other henchmen, I don't think it's as strong of a movie. Um, but I think when it focuses on her, that's where the movie really excels. See, I um the one scene I, I think Sebastian Stan is actually pretty good in this movie. Not great, but oh. I think he's pretty good. I don't the when we got to the henchman bit, the two guys actually did the attack. That felt like off-brand Cohen Brothers. That felt like some yeah. intro to a, it just didn't really work for me. But this is the movie that broke Paul Walter Hauser into the mainstream based on his performance of uh Sean. And I think that his performance is incredible, especially when you watch the real interview with the guy that he's playing. Mm-hmm. Cause you would think, Oh, this is pretty broad. Like this guy is obviously like Paul Walter. I was like, his performance is he's going over the top to make this guy appear as stupid mm-hmm. as possible. But then you watch it and it's like, he's almost breath for breath, just <laughs> imitating <laughs> this guy. And you're like, yeah, Holy shit. This guy really said and did all of, a lot of this stuff. <laughs> But I think that's my problem is that it feels just like an imitation. And that's why I like Margot Robbie's performance so much because it doesn't feel like an imitation. It feels like an actual lived in performance that she's actually living and breathing this as a character and not just imitating. So, but I hear you. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of some of her monologues and stuff are from Tanya interviews. So there's definitely imitation her performance as well. I mean, there's so many people have done YouTube stuff. All of the talking head portions that feel quasi documentary are from real documentaries with all of these Mm -hmm. players in it. And they're all there's imitation in everybody's performance because it's a bi biopic. It's a, it's a quasi mockumentary, almost documentary style Mm -hmm. slash drama narrative slash kind of wanting to be Scorsese, but not <laughs> like sort of a film. And I mean, it ultimately works for me and it does work because the strength of the performance of Robbie, who I do think is excellent in the movie. It's just after I saw it the first time and it was like a, like a tour de force of a film. I really loved it. It was probably think if I had to go back, it was probably like one or two of my best of that year. Really, really enjoyed it. Watching it in the continuity of the five films we're watching it now, it doesn't, to me, feel as bold in its story structure and its performance because now I've, she's, there's three movies in this list that 
have the exact same story structure and she's breaking the fourth <laughs> wall and she and so it it feels like okay this is her thing this is a shtick that she does that she likes this is a artistic motif that she employs that she likes being a part of these projects so it kind of ended up diminishing this movie to me because it feels less of a like a standalone achievement it feels more of like it's part of a piece now and so for that reason, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Still a very high score. It's my second of the week. Um, I thought it was going to be my number one going into this. It kind of surprised me. I thought for sure, like, oh, okay. Like when I sat down, I was like, okay, I, Tanya is definitely going to be number one. Love that movie. I still like it. I like it a lot. I like her a lot in it. It just kind of left me a little, at the end, a little kind of the same way I felt about Wolf of Wall Street. It was like, I don't think we're buttoning this up. Right. I think it kind of bungles its ending. Um, I don't know what more I would have. Ultimately, I, I, I think it bothers me that it ends with the celebrity boxing. Mm. Because that was 20 okay. some years ago, 25 years ago. She's mm-hmm. Don, I, I almost wanted Robbie. And maybe we'd run in the same issue with Wolf of Wall Street. If you throw the real Tanya Harding in there, it's like, well, is this an endorsement of Tanya right. Harding? But I almost wanted, like, rather than just text on a screen, I almost wanted a time jump to see where is this person now? Like, it, I don't know. It just kind of, it just sort of ends. And I, I think what I'm getting at is the movie is trying to tell me that there's more to her than just this incident. But the bulk of the movie is the lead up and the events around the, the incident. incident. <laughs> yes. And then, okay, if you focus, and that's, and they even make a meta thing. She's like, okay, yes. you know, this is why you're all here. But then <laughs> we don't go beyond that. We, we just, it's, we just show another embarrassment, another humiliation for her. And it's like, it feels antithetical to the story that we were maybe trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Just show me like, give, if she's a good mom or whatever, you know, and maybe she isn't, maybe that's part of the unreliable narrator. Maybe she's still, you know, maybe I don't know. I don't know, but just I wanted something more from this ending in the same way I wanted something more from Wolf of Wall Street, other than him just I don't know. It just has that same <laughs> problem. Um and and not as many good supporting performances other than Alice and Janney, who I think is just incredible in the movie. Yeah, she's good. She's definitely yeah. good. Um yeah, I can definitely see why she won an Oscar for for that role. Which, yeah. and interestingly, the role was written specifically for her, which I thought was really interesting too. Um, yeah, I I hear you, and it is it is interesting. Wolf of Wall Street and I Tanya are an interesting double feature because you're right; they are doing so many of the same things stylistically. Both unreliable narrators, you know, have done yeah. arguably awful thing. Well, jo- Jordan Belfort definitely has done something awful. Oh, terrible. Hard- yeah. Allegedly, arguably, who knows? Um, we'll never get the full story. Yeah, and as far as the the kind of coda that she was a good mom, that came from her directly saying, the screenwriter who talked to her was like, what do you want people to take away from when watching you on screen? And she's like, I want them to know I was a good mom. And I'm like, okay, that that's nice, but yeah, why don't we see that? And right. It's, in, it's interesting because she didn't have any say over what was depicted, what was – because she that was like one of the first things she asked supposedly was, you know, am I going to have control over yeah. this? And the screenwriter was like, no. And she's like, oh, okay. So she didn't have any say. She had no um, 
you know, control over what was going to be shown. But that is still interesting that it's like, oh, and she's a good mom. And it would have been nice if we had seen that. I agree with you. I, I'm i a little kinder to the ending only because I tend to think most endings are not great. Endings are really hard. Yeah. To pull off. I'll give you, yes, it's very true. Yeah. yeah. So unless it's a really egregiously bothersome ending, I tend to be like, eh, okay, it wasn't a great ending, but most are not. And when, but you, yeah, when, you're, I, do, when you're doing something about a real person, if they're dead, the ending is their death. That writes itself, right? Not necessarily, because that's the thing. And that's the thing I wanted to say is I love that this is not actually a biopic or this is an unconventional biopic because I don't like biopics. I think they're they're dull. They're boring. We don't need a linear narrative showing an entire person's life. I much prefer something unconventional like this, like Spencer, like um, Jackie. I like those very unconventional. Like Wolf of Wall Street. No. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that too. It's the same yeah. movie. It is not. <laughs> Just because they're dealing with the same themes doesn't mean it's the same movie. That's like saying it's the same movie as Goodfellas. It's not. <laughs> Just because I think Goodfellas did it better doesn't mean it's the same movie. But I digress. Um yeah, but I like unconventional biopics. And so I don't think you need to see an entire person's story. I don't think you need to see like, oh, when they're dead, that's the end of the film. Like, no, you can show just a day in their life. You could show just one moment. You could show one weekend like Spencer does. You could show a couple days like Jackie does. Um, so I'm okay with the fact that we don't see her today. But the celebrity boxing is a weird thing to end it on. Um, it's a weird choice. I don't think it's the right choice. I agree with you. Um and I, I think this film does have some missteps. I just think it, we're doing a Margot Robbie retrospective. Looking at her performance, for me, this is the best. Like, this is so good. This and Harley Quinn are neck and neck. I think they're both phenomenal performances. So for me, my score is 9.2. Ooh, very high. Is this your number one for the week or... This is your I mean, two. technically, I have it tied. <laughs> technically, spoiler alert, I have it tied with Birds of Prey. But if I had to pick one, you do. If I'm going on the movie, it'd be Birds of Prey. If I'm going on the performance, it's I Tanya. So since we're talking about her performances, this is going to be my number one. This is your okay. So I Tanya is going to be your number one, and you're adding it yes. to the guest list. To, yes. to potentially defend it later on. Okay. Yes. I probably should have picked Birds of Prey, though, because I more. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure going into it, it's either going to be Birds of Prey or I, Tanya, and you're going to very, you're very much dislike Wolf of Wall Street, and that's exactly <laughs> where we're at. I don't very much dislike it, though. I gave it an 8.1. You say, like, oh, it gives me the heebie jeebies. <laughs> what do you say? Yeah. It makes me want to take a shower. I feel gross. I feel gross <laughs> I watching Itania. I feel gross watching Itania because I think that sometimes that. the joke is, I think sometimes the joke is on Tanya in the script. Yeah, see, I don't. I, I yeah. get that. And, and that's the thing. Like, I'm not going to say you're wrong because I don't think you are. And I get that. I don't. And I, th I think the difference is agency. If she didn't have the agency in this film, I would agree with you. But I think mm. because she does, I'm okay with it. And I don't, I think it's, I, I don't feel like it's laughing at her. I think it's kind of laughing at the ridiculousness of the situation. Um, I don't think it's, egregious. I, yeah. I do think it's, a, I don't think it's egregious, but I do think there are certain scenes where tonally, I think it maybe, maybe accidentally slips over into, Look at these dumb, poor people. And it's like, ooh. And I think sometimes it's like, look at look how, and her included, 
It's like, look how fucking dumb that these trashy people are. Just a little bit. It just goes over that line. And I'm like, I didn't pick it up the first time I watched it. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that impression. I did this time and it kind of made me, that's why I had to knock it down a little bit. Cause it was like, uh, like, I don't know. Just, it just a little bit. It just, it was just a, it was a different experience this time. Okay. Speaking of different experience, (laughs) let's move on to 2020's birds of prey, which currently has a 79% on rotten tomatoes. Can I help you? I'm here to report a terrible crime. Joker and I broke up. And a lot of people want me dead. Oh, shit. He's after all of us now. Unless we all want to die, we're going to have to work together. <laughs> With you. Are we ready? Woo! Birds of Prey was directed by Kathy Yan. It was written by Christina Hodson. It is a triumph return of Mary Elizabeth Winstead, last seen in many, many, many moons ago in Live Free or Die Hard. Triumph return of Margot Robbie, last seen in Suicide Squad, again. Margot, 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 of course. Uh, and this is the debut, get your binge books out. This is the debut of Rosie Perez, so I don't think we've ever covered the show before. What? This is released January 25th, 2000, and February 7th, 2000. Uh, on a budget of between 82 and $100 million. <laughs> Again, <laughs> that's life-changing money. Uh, this made $205.3 million. Uh, a newly single Harley Quinn dodges an entire town that wants her dead and teams up with a lady underground to save a kid. I absolutely adore this film. As we're talking about it, I might change this to <laughs> This is my number one because I love this movie so much. This, I... I own this movie. I watch it multiple times. This is joyous. This is vibrant. It's irreverent. It's funny. It's exhilarating to watch. The action sequences are riveting. Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, she has taken an established character and put her own stamp on this character. And I love watching what she's going to do. I love having it unfold and seeing what she's going to say. I love how she relishes breakfast sandwiches and animals and I'm here for the girl gang film. And I love that you called it the girl gang. Cause I know Margot Robbie pitched it as a girl gang yeah. film. Um, so it's a nice nod, but yeah, I, I love this film. I love everything about it. I love the colors. I love the cinematography. I love the bisexual lighting. I love the camaraderie between the women. Uh, I love the hair tie scene because, yes, we all need a hair tie when we have long hair and we're fighting, I guess. Um, I just – I love this film so much. It's so – for me, it's so full of joy. But at the same time, it's also – it's also denouncing misogyny. It's critiquing it. It is showing the horrors of it. I also find this an incredibly – Strangely, because it's a kind of anti-superhero film, I find it very cathartic to see a domestic violence survivor, which Harley Quinn is, Mm -hmm. kind of reclaim her life and find a new path and new meaning and a new community. And I just love that. So I love this film. Um, this is this is interesting. This is my fourth attempt to watch this movie. Uh, and my first time actually being able to complete it because the first three times I was just like, I found it overly mannered and because I, I, here 
Scorsese kind of invented it, and then Guy Ritchie kind of did it, to, took it to the next extreme. And it's just sort of like, I don't even say Scorsese invented it, but he popularized it. There's this like mannered filmmaking, kinetic, frenzied, jumping back and forth, unreliable narrator, fourth wall breaking, this and that. And when it, like I said at the very beginning, when it works, it works very well. And when it doesn't, or when you're not in the mood or you're not on board for it, I personally find it very grating. And this came out right around the peak of COVID. And I was just like, I, I, I don't want all this chaos. The life is chaos. I don't want any movie that is just chaos and like all this sort of stuff. So I tried to watch it. And I was just like, I can't do it. I cannot watch this movie. I just, I'm, I'm tired of DC, tired of superhero movies. I'm tired of these Guy Ritchie style films. I'm not doing it. So and I've tried a couple of times and I was like, I'm eventually going to get to it. I got to it for this episode. This time around, I was in a better frame of mind. And I I didn't I I didn't find it annoying. I didn't find it nearly as charming <laughs> as a lot of other people do. Because again, also it, this movie had the disservice of it's I'm watching it with Itanya and a lot of other movies that narratively are structured very similar. And I'm just sort of like, it's just felt like a little bit more of the same. And, uh, but, it, but it, it's, I don't know what this style is called. This needle dropping, hyper stylized pop action cinema. It has to have a name. I don't know what it is, but there's a lot of movies that have this kind of tone, shoot them up, smoking aces, everything Guy Ritchie's ever done. Um, it's not really Tarantino, but Mm-mm. maybe a little bit. Um, even Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, which I'm a fan of, uh, kind of does oh. this a little bit. Um, I My biggest takeaway is she didn't want this to be the Harley Quinn movie. She wanted this to be a girl gang movie. And I feel like so many of the other female characters, great cast, great performances, Mm-hmm. I know who these characters are from the comic books. I'm very interested in these other characters. I feel like they try to do a little bit of that, like, oh, we're going to go back and give you, like, Kill Bill style. Like, this is who this character is and backstory and this and that, especially for Huntress. And I'm like, I kind of needed, I wanted more of her story. I wanted more of the Canary story. I wanted more of Montoya's story. I wanted more of all of these other characters. And it's the problem that all superhero movies run into when they're a team up movie is kind of you end up feeling like some of these people are a little bit underdeveloped. Um, I know about all I need to know at this point for where this story is at about Harley Quinn, because we've had her for two, two, some movies and the animated series and comic books and whatever. And she's been a big focus. I don't know as much about this version of these other female characters, including the kid they're trying to save. And I don't feel like the movie I don't want it to be four hours long like some of these other <laughs> Zack Snyder movies, but <laughs> I wanted more from these characters. I don't know that I wanted a, necessarily a Huntress standalone movie, but if they had done something in the lead up to this movie or supplemental to this movie to develop these characters, I think this would have made, for me, this a stronger movie overall because we have a, such an excellent cast. It's just it's really hard to balance everybody in a movie like this. And I don't know that it can, because it's got to have its plot. It's got to have its MacGuffin. It's got to have its villain. It's got, it has to have all of these things that all these movies have to have. And 
typically char- characters kind of suffer because of it. And I felt like some of the side characters suffered. I'm not the only one that thinks that. Rosie Perez thinks that as well. So it's not just, <laughs> I had that critique. And then I was like looking <laughs> online, just researching the movie a little bit. And she also said that she's not sure if she's going to come back. She found the movie ages. Because all the jokes about her character, about how old she is. And it made her very uncomfortable because she felt it took away the strength of her character. And it reduced. And apparently there was more filmed with the other members of the Mm -hmm. Birds of Prey. And it was all kind of cut down. So that's kind of disappointing. Because I kind of. And then we even had the confusion of, well, is this Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey? Is it Birds of Prey? Is it, you know, the, the title changed a bunch of times. So I think there was some studio meddling of no nobody knows who the Birds of Prey are, so we can't market it as that movie. But everybody loves Harley Quinn, so we got to market it as Harley Quinn. But Margot Robbie wanted it to be a mm-hmm. team movie. And so I think the file edit tries to split the difference between probably what she wanted and what the story was and what the studio thought was marketable. And I think the movie kind of suffers a little bit because of that. I liked it. I think it kind of suffers because I think it's like they couldn't quite decide what it was going to be. I hear you. That's not my experience, though. <laughs> I just wanted more of these characters. I wanted more yeah, dimension well, from I these mean, characters. See, so here's the thing. I mean, that is, that is the intention is that these characters intend, were intended to be introduced and then they were going to get their own yeah. movie without Harley Quinn. Um, and then, you know, and of course... Um, Journey Smollett, I can't think of her character's name now. It just immediately escaped. Black uh, Canary. Black Canary. She's getting her own series, um, which is in development now, which is great. But yeah, so I mean, when you're introducing characters, sure, you're not going to necessarily get the full treatment. But I don't agree that we don't get a sense of who these characters are. Like, I feel like I know who these characters are. And yeah, it is a lot to balance. But I feel like I learned more about this iteration of Harley Quinn because I despise Suicide Squad and I just like the Suicide Squad was fine not great but fine but the first Suicide Squad I hated I despised so I was really excited to see the character of Harley Quinn in a better movie a better version of that character um in the DCEU and yeah and so and I liked all these characters and I I got a sense of who they were and I think that a good filmmaker can show you a sense of a character very quickly. And I think that that's what Kathy Ann does here. I can't, I can't disagree with Rosie Perez's feelings about the jokes being ageist. That's completely understandable and fair. Um, but yeah, I mean the fact I, that I we're getting, it. go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I was just going to say the fact that we're getting such a feminist superhero film with so many, queer women and women of color and that it's balancing all these characters and it's so fun and it's joyous and jubilant and it's making societal commentaries on abuse and misogyny. I mean, it, it's dealing with a lot. And I, yeah. I think for me, it balances it extremely well. I think it's doing all of those elements really, really well. Well, I can agree philosophically with the traits that a movie <laughs> has or what it's trying to do. Like I can agree with the values of a movie and still not be wowed by the structure and the finished product of the movie. Oh, sure. So my critique is not in its values or who it's representing. My critique is, I don't think it does. And this is a common critique that I have with a lot of comic book movies. It's not limited Mm -hmm. to this one. 
a lot of them because there's there's a lot that they're trying to do. The, mm-hmm. the, the narrative structure of a comic book, that serialized way of being able to, this issue is going to go on this tangent and focus on this character and trying to, tr- and then, you know, you have five or six issues being able to build backstories for characters before the team up and then the team up happens, then you're in the bulk of the story. You can't really do that in a, in a two hour or hour and 45 minute or a three hour or a four hour movie. You can't, <laughs> totally. It's a different way of telling a story, which is why mm-hmm. like, I think the initial initiative of the MCU was so smart because they structured their movies very much like you would comic books where we're leading up to and planting the seeds towards an Avengers movie by these individual stories. And then it, so that made that movie that much more successful. They've had trouble replicating it since then, especially in the last phase. DC has seemingly never been able to do that because the issue there with Warner Brothers and DC, and it's going to be a whole new thing now because of the sale, is they're constantly battling against kind of exactly what we talked about with Tarzan, where it's like, what's (laughs) marketable versus what is interesting story-wise, right? Right. The art versus commerce kind of conversation. And we got to catch up with, with Marvel. We're behind the eight ball, so we can't afford to do these standalone movies, we've got to make each movie has to serve four or five different purposes because we got to get to justice league and we got to get to this and we, you know, and we're killing Superman and we're resurrecting him and we're doing evil Superman and we're doing all the same movie. Because, oh my God, we got to tell these stories when they all should be <laughs> in a different era. They'd all be fucking standalone trilogies, right? This movie is not as egregious as the worst parts of the DCEU. I think it's one of the better movies they've made, but it's got that same issue of, and this is again, Hollywood mainstream movies. Oh, well, they're all eventually going to get their standalone stories. Maybe if we find the budget and the time for it, or we're going to do something else with the birds of prey. If this one's successful enough. So this Harley Quinn movie, because she's marketable is actually a backdoor pilot for birds of prey properties that are going to come later. And it's like, I based on my sense, watching the movie and then, feeling a little bit confirmed in some of the comments that have been made by the cast. I don't think that's the movie they signed up for. I will say this. I think Ewan McGregor is having the time of his life. (laughs) I think he's fantastic. I think he's at the time of his life. I love the fact that at the end of the movie, there's no big final fight. They just blow him up. He just blows up. (laughs) It's refreshing. It's Uh, refreshing. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. I think it's, I think um, his performance is so yeah, it's so creepy and menacing. I mean, the scene, and it's funny because I've talked with other people, and when I say the scene, they know exactly like talking about, especially if you're a woman, the scene in the club where yes. he tells the woman to stand on the table. Like that scene is it I was not prepared for it the first time I saw it, and it just floored me. Like I had a pit in my stomach. It was so gross, it's so awful. But and it's very clear that the, obviously the film is condemning him because you see Black Canary's expression and she's revolted and just horrified. Yeah. And it shows obviously what a piece of shit person he is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And but yeah, but it, I just think it's done so well. Um, I think he's having the time of his life. I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead is having the time yes, of her life. Yes, she's yeah. so good at this. Yeah, I is. love yeah. her. Um, I would argue Margot Robbie's having the time of her life. I think it's very clear she loves this character and she loves portraying her because in every iteration I've seen her in, 
each of the films, it's a slightly different take because, you know, of course you're getting a different director, different mm-hmm. writer, but you, the core is still there. And I just, I really love, I love seeing it. And I, yeah, so I just, I, I know what you're saying and, and, you know, I would be curious what the original film, like the all the uncut footage and and the film they signed up for, it'd be really interesting to see that film. But I do, I love this film. I love what we get. I love what we see. I think this is hands down, far and away, the most, this is the vastly superior DCEU film. I think this is the best film in the DCEU and I do not like most of their films. Um, <laughs> I don't. I think most of them are awful. Uh, I also think most Marvel films are not great. I, I'm not a fan of the Marvel franchise. I think those films are kind of fine. They tread water. They're fine. They're not really doing anything egregiously awful, but they're not doing anything wildly interesting either aside from a couple exceptions like Thor Ragnarok. Um, but I think the Marvel series are really interesting. And so I, I think you're right. I think comic book movies should not be necessarily movies. I think they work much better as a series. They're serialized so, entertainment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it works much better that way. What I will say though, is that I like what I like, and this is what I like about the Batman. Cause I do like that. And this is what mm-hmm. I like about this film is that I like when they're, I like when they're a little more focused and I know that's going to sound contradictory because this film is encompassing so many characters, but I feel like it's kind of focused in scope and in time. And I think that if you're going to do a comic book movie, which clearly they're not going away anytime soon, I think that's what you need to do. You need to focus on one event or one day or something like you need to be really laser focused. And if you want to have something more expansive, then do it in a series form. This is where the controversy is going to hit because I only got one slot left. This is my number four. <laughs> I liked <laughs> focused better than birds of prey. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. He did. Focus is three. What? Uh, <laughs> let me look at, what? let me, let me tabulate my scores. Okay. All right. So they're tied. I gave them both sevens out of tens. I gave them both sevens out of tens. So really I have the choice of, do I rearrange my ranking now and satisfy Ooh. Megan? But birds of praise only going to be a three. It's only going to be middling. Oh, well, yeah. You can't go all or. <laughs> hmm. It's tough. I also feel like the, the movie underutilized Rosie Perez though. I think she gets the, the short shrift in the film. It's like, she's just, She's just a cop. It's like, ah, I wanted more from her. I mean, she's a lesbian cop. <sighs> that, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a fact about her. I'm just that's saying. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fact. It's not a character. <laughs> well, she leaves the force because it's corrupt. And I like that because. Yes, I did like I, that. I, yes. Yeah. So there's that. Mm. She's a little bit more. She's a lesbian cop. You know, in the eighties when they had all like maniac cop, cyborg cop, (laughs) scanner cop, lesbian lesbian cop. cop. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're talking. (laughs) Now we're cooking with gas. Yeah. Now we're cooking with lesbian gas. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm going to keep this as my four. I'm going to keep it as my four. Focus is my three. I know. Uh, so this is going to be now your number one. 
I don't know. Oh fuck. Yeah, I gotta decide. Yeah, because this is my yep. this is also nine point two. Um oh I love them both so much. I hate deciding sometimes. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> this is why I was hoping you had I Tanya so then I could have do birds of prey. I thought I thought for sure it's gonna have I Tanya for sure. I like yeah. I thought, oh, yeah. it's a lock, I Tanya, but it just didn't work as much this time no and i and i understand i like that's the thing like i get everything you're saying and yeah yeah but no i do that's a yeah you know what i'm gonna stick with i tanya because i if we're looking at the movies i do like birds of prey more but we're looking at performances and if we're looking at the performance then i like margot robbie's better so i'm going yeah and i think the thing is is she's the glue of i tanya which is right. why I, it doesn't I, work without her. It doesn't yeah. work without her. And I struggled. Right. I was like, ah, do I, do I bump it up? Because she really holds it together. But it was, I think the direction, I mean, it's Martin Scorsese. So at the direction, I feel stronger. <laughs> I'm like in Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, it was tough. This was, this was a tough week. I mean, it the was bottom tough wasn't tough, week. but the top was tough. Right. I completely agree with you. I know. Cause I'm like, I can't believe I'm not putting Martin Scorsese in the top. <laughs> like I'm kind of shocked, but I'm like, yeah. you know, if it was age of innocence or Goodfellas, then maybe I right. would, I probably would. Yeah. But yeah, but like, and I do, I love birds of prey cause I love the way it's directed. I think it's great. Uh, I, I mean, but honestly I love them both equally. I think they're both great films. Um, but yeah. And I do. I love, I love, Birds of Prey. I watch it over and over. It's so much fun. And I guess that's the thing too. Like, would I want to watch Itania again? Eh, maybe not. <laughs> so but what, I still think. So what's your uh, final decision? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. I know. Well, wait, am I going by the movie or the performance? Because those it's, are different. It's your choice. It's your, you have to justify it to yourself and to our audience. Oh, good call. Mm. Damn. It's tough. I know. I know. I I know. It is tough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how much time can I stop? No. Um, uh, I'm There's doing no, birds of prey. Oh, you're picking birds of prey? I'm going birds of prey. Okay. There's no wrong answer. <laughs> it's your choice. It's your list. Yeah. It's your pick. Yep. Okay. I know, All but right. I love them both. <laughs> All right, it's time for our recap. Coming in dead last for me is Legend of Tarzan, which I gave a two out of ten. I think it was originally like a four, and I just I just knocked it down two more points because it's Bir- so bad. Birds of Prey, which I give a seven out of ten, is my number four. Uh, I just wanted more. I wanted more from the Birds of Prey in the Birds of Prey movie. Coming in number three, mostly due to genre, mostly due to I don't know what else. It was fine. Uh, middling film, 2015's focus. You have a seven out of 10. I think my expectations were lower and it surpassed my expectations. Barely. I think my expectations for birds of prey were higher and it fell a little short. Mm. Um, I Tanya number two, eight out of 10. I thought for sure this was going to be my number one because I love this movie. I originally saw it. I didn't d- dislike the movie. I just liked it. Didn't love it this time. I did feel it. Sometimes it got into being, it was missing its target and it was shooting fish in the barrel. Sometimes it's like, you know, uh, number one is Wolf of Wall Street, just because I think it's superior editing, superior direction, superior supporting performances to anything else on the list. And uh, it's the movie that broke Margot Robbie. And I think to what uh, Megan said, it was it's really could have been a throwaway character. And instead, yes. it becomes an, um, uh, an incredibly complex and 
engaging character for sure. So what is your recap, Megan? <laughs> okay. So in last place is Legend of Tarzan. That's clear. And the, yes, that is the far and away the worst. I gave that a 3.3 because it's just boring and awful. And Margot Robbie for me was the only bright spot in the entire muddled murky film, um, which, wow. Yeah, that film is just a hot mess and was hard to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> My number four is Focus. I gave that a 4.3. Um, this should have been great. And I think that's the, my problem is that mm. this looked good. It had, you know, great locations. Margot Robbie is great. Will Smith can be really great. Um, the third person who we kept not naming, <laughs> he's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this could have been a really fun film. And I just, I found it really boring, really tedious, it just goes nowhere. It essentially just objectifies Margot Robbie instead of really allowing her to do anything and it sidelines her. So yeah, this was a no for me. This was my fourth film of the week. My third film is a Wolf of Wall Street. Gave it an 8.1. I think it's an incredibly, like you said, it's an incredibly well-made film. Technically, the cinematography, the editing are exceptional. Um, I am not as enamored with Leonardo DiCaprio's performance. I think he's fine. I I think he does a a serviceable job. For me, this is Margot Robbie's film. Like she is the is the standout, and for the reason you said, I said (laughs) for her making the most of that role. Um, And yeah, and I like the themes that it is contending with. I just don't ultimately like the execution of them. So it's why it doesn't quite work for me. But I still think this is an incredibly well-made film. So this is my number three. My number two film, oh, this kills me because really, in all honesty, I would have them equal. But I, Tanya is going to be my number two film at 9.2 because Margot Robbie is the reason to watch this film. It is, I think it's her best performance. It is such a layered, complex, nuanced performance dealing with pain and rage and ambition and it's just so good but really you're right when you take her out of it the rest of the film just doesn't it doesn't quite work I like the style of it I like what it's doing but it just doesn't work as effectively um and I do like that it's dealing with class and poverty but you're right it's we it's I think it's a weird choice that this is a a black comedy um and maybe if it wasn't then it would work better but I still do love this film tremendously for Margot Margo Robbie's performance. So this is my number two and my number one because this is a film I like to return to. I own this film. I like watching it. I watch it quite often is Birds of Prey, number one, also 9.2. I love Margot Robbie's performance in this. I think this is another performance that Harley Quinn is a great character, but I think it could have been very easy to just be kind of a one note. Oh, she's wacky. Oh, she's wild. Oh, you don't know what mm-hmm. she's going to do. But I think Margot Robbie infuses this character like she does so many of her characters with rage, with vulnerability, with pathos, with a hard um, one tenacity and a strength of character and a resiliency that's really riveting to watch and a brashness that is really refreshing. And so I just love this character. I, in particular, I love her in this film. I love the supporting characters as well. I love the camaraderie. I love the kinetic cinematography and action sequences. It is so much fun to watch. Um, and it's also dealing with some heavy commentary too, which I always like an infusion of that in my fun films. 
So this is just a joy to watch. And I watched this before the pandemic. So maybe that's why I enjoy the chaos more <laughs> and embrace this a little bit more than maybe other people. Um, but yeah, I love this film and I love Margot Robbie. I thought for sure that one of us was going to pick I, Tanya. <laughs> well, I almost did. And then neither of us. Yeah, you did and you didn't. So then neither of us did. I know. Which means it's gone and added to the guest list is Birds of Prey, Harley Quinn, the Emancipation of Harley, whatever. The, I have, well, they've changed the title so many times. I don't know. But it's a Birds of Prey movie. <laughs> and, um, and then um, Wolf of Wall Street. I, which I didn't think was going to happen, but it did. So here we wow. are. Oh, boy. Wonders never see. Speaking of wonders, <laughs> in our very next episode, we'll be talking about the top grossing films of the year 2000, 10 through 6, which includes How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh, God. <laughs> Meet the Parents, The Perfect Storm, X-Men, and What Lies Beneath. Ooh. Which I've actually talked about on Patreon previously over at Spoiler Peace Theater. Yes, you have. I've never talked about it on this show, and I don't know that I'll be able to top that episode <laughs> over at Spoiler Peace Theater. Megan, I can't think of a better person to disagree with about movies than you. Aww. Because you're always well-reasoned, and I can never really fault your logic even when I don't agree with its conclusion about a movie. And that's why I love you because you. you think deeply about this sort of stuff and you got reasons. The only time you kind of didn't have a reason was lesbian cop. And you're just like, well, lesbian cop. <laughs> and she quit the force. <laughs> and she quit the force. That was your weakest argument. The entire time. <laughs> Everything else is, is exceptionally well reasoned, <laughs> but I do want to see 1987's lesbian cop on vector video or Vestron video. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, it's probably out there and it's probably pornography. But uh <laughs> probably, definitely. <laughs> Megan, when you're not here arguing with a man who's mansplaining movies to you, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me at Spoiler Peace Theater. I co-host the weekly podcast um, where we talk about spoilers and movies and review new films. And you can also find my film criticism at Edge Media Network, where I write film reviews. And yeah, also a member of the Boston Online Film Critics Association and a member of Gallica, the Society for um, LGBTQ Entertainment Critics. If you want to listen to a podcast where a woman lady splains movies to men, Spoiler <laughs> Peace Theater is the one to you. <laughs> Megan has to explain the movies to the men that she's on the show with, who are great guys, but they're, they're men. Great. And she's a lady. So if you want lady splaining, go to spoilerpeacetheater.com. <laughs> Spoiler Peace Theater, all your favorite podcast apps. The goal of film criticism is not that you're always supposed to agree with the ideas that you engage in. It is that you are supposed to think more broadly and more deeply, even if at the end you still disagree. I could not have said it better myself. I, yeah, some of my favorite pieces of film criticism are ones that I disagree with, but made me rethink a film that I either liked before or disliked no. or, yeah. So I, so folks, what you just agree. heard is Megan said this episode is one of her favorite pieces of film criticism. <laughs> <laughs> Always. You know, I love coming here. This is my favorite place to come. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. I'm your Gene Shallot. <laughs> oh, Gene Shallot. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> on that note, until next time, binge on! <laughs>